Welcome to Roll Calling, a podcast about actors we love and the movies we love them in. I'm Ned Baker, a filmmaker and a Bond boy. And I'm Sita, Caroline Sita. Ooh. <laughs> did you enjoy that, Ned? <laughs> I did. Could you tell by the little ooh I made? The yeah. way this podcast works is that Caroline and I take turns curating a five-film miniseries starring an actor we love. We've just finished our James Dean series, and we're about to embark on a brand new journey with an actor that I simply adore, Jeffrey Wright. Before we do that, though, I want to first say, welcome back. I've missed you. I mean, I don't know if I'm talking to the audience or to you. I've missed you, Caroline. We've gone. I've we, missed so you, we've, Ned. Yeah, we've gone to every other week, which I think is going to be good for us. And we're going to do that at least for a bit. Try it out. But also, I've missed chatting. Um, how's your week been? How have your weeks been? Weeks have been good. It was my birthday this week. Yeah, so that happy was a birthday. fun week. Got a lot of errands done. And now I'm feeling like bringing a good energy into this year. That's that's what I'm aiming for. Great. That's great. And I'm I'm really excited for today's episode. Very excited to get this series started and so, so excited to welcome a special guest to this episode, podcaster Joe Cunningham. Welcome, Joe. Hi, thank you for having me. Happy birthday, Caroline. Thank you, Joe. I'm very excited to be here to be talking uh, Bond and Wright all, all in one go. Yeah. And I'll, I'll okay, I'm going to do this once and then I'm going to drop it. But so Joe is the host of uh, a podcast called Cinematic Universe. And if you are someone who's had any conversation with me about podcasts in the last, like, however long ago Infinity War was, because that was definitely when I started tuning in on Caroline's suggestion, I have preached the gospel of the show. I am a huge fan of the show that yourself and James Hunt and Reese Williamson and formerly Seb Patrick host. It is just an incredible, good-hearted, good-natured, nerdy breakdown of all comic book movie things. I listen to it very regularly i'm a huge fan and um it's very exciting to have you on the show so caroline has also been a guest on it many many times so in on a on a very in fact i think our second episode ever um back when we were still doing lots of research um we were (laughs) (laughs) we were um doing an episode about agent carter and i Mm -hmm. found caroline's article about it on the um on the av club and Mm -hmm. talked about it on the episode and then tweeted afterwards you know if anyone wants to read the really good article that we were talking about on on this episode you should you should go find it here and it's it's caroline cedar and then um this fancy av club writer responds to me (laughs) and it's like oh that's me the fanciest lady around (laughs) that's my article thank thank you and then listened and i think you were surprised that probably because yeah it 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 feels a podcast called cinematic universe i do think sometimes sounds like it's going to be a a real like fanboy like just uh, bowing at the altar of all of that nerdy uh shit and we, we do to an extent but I think hopefully, Caroline, that you were surprised that we were relatively level-headed, normal people, and yeah. <laughs> I think we, I think our approach has always been we are preternaturally into this kind of nerdy stuff, um, <laughs> comic book yeah, inspired yeah, movies in particular, yeah, and um, and sometimes 
Independence Day when you and I want to do a yes. bonus episode on Independence Oca- Day. Occasionally when, you know, when we really want to um, talk about something, we are willing to expand the the remit of the podcast. Other times, uh, like this week, we talk about Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance because we haven't talked about it before. Um, but yeah, I think we, we, try and, um, we try and talk about that stuff, but we're not afraid to be critical of it. And, you know, we don't think that everything everything that is done is perfect and and yeah hopefully then that's a that's a nice balance to you know some of some of the more um intense fanboy stuff that you find online yeah mm-hmm. i think the balance struck is really great i have to say i do feel like a maybe 50% of the reason i wanted to start roll calling was as a long game to get ned and joe in the same (laughs) well virtual room at some point to chat about nerdy things so i really feel like i have successfully pulled off my own like bond style secret mission and obviously i'm biased because i'm on cinematic universe sometimes but i also think it's a wonderful podcast and if we want to do a direct plug i know that you guys on your patreon series just did all of what if which is one of jeffrey wright's big current project yeah. i believe along with talking about ghostwriter you talked about what if on your your main feed free main feed episode that just came out as we're recording yeah we did we talked kind of uh broad takes what well, we we normally we normally so far those disney plus shows we've been doing full episodes in the main feed but what if felt a bit a bit it would have been a bit weird to try and dig into the overall narrative of that for two hours but you know the one the one aspect that is overall narrative is Jeffrey Wright, and I think mm-hmm. I think I said this on the podcast. I think he's giving the best voice performance on that show, and the, he gets to do the most interesting stuff with his character. And I really hope that they have um, they have plans to give that character a live action form at some point, mm. because who doesn't want to see Jeffrey Wright doing that in live action? Yeah, I want to see him wear the cape. I I'm yeah. only I was really hoping to wrap that up before we had our conversation today. I'm halfway through what is probably my least favorite episode so far, what if Thor threw a giant party? Mm-hmm. So I haven't made it yet to what I'm kind of hoping is a little bit of like a series-long payoff for the Watcher. I'm hoping he... I mean, I know that his, he's in the title of the ninth episode, and I'm yeah. looking forward to that, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been enjoying it so far. I've watched none of them, but I have listened to every Patreon episode you guys have oh, released, yeah? so I've solely consumed <laughs> what if through... <laughs> You and James talking about them. I have definitely done that with shows in the past. <laughs> yeah. I haven't caught those episodes yet, but I, I'm looking forward to them. Because, yeah, I've been enjoying the show relatively yeah, so that's, far. Yeah, that's kind of where we landed on it. Well, uh, ja- highs and James was, was a lot James higher on it. Yeah, it. James is like, I'm okay. going to go back, I'm going to rewatch every episode. And I'm like, this this fills half an hour of my week, and it doesn't upset me. <laughs> sure. and, and yeah, it's fun. <laughs> Sure. So let's free associate a little bit for a second. We're Today we're going to get into Jeffrey Wright's career in something of an oblique way, because in case this hasn't been made clearer, the focus of today's episode is the new film, No Time to Die, the new James Bond film, uh, which is you know the project that has him on movie screens right now as we speak, and is arguably the sort of franchise that has introduced him to a lot of people. But before we do that, I want to go a little bit wider and just say, when I say Jeffrey Wright, uh, what do you think of? Well, I'll start because yeah, I, I actually uh, will get into this, but I'm not a huge like Bond person. I'm, a, I'm like a Bond neutral person. I have no strong takes in a positive way. I have no strong takes in a negative way. I mm-hmm. mainly just don't uh, associate with the franchise at all. <laughs> so that was not my personal in for Jeffrey Wright. My big in for Jeffrey Wright was The Hunger Games. He came in in the second Hunger Games movie, Catching Fire playing, I think, 
an archetype that he became very familiar for, which is this sort of like nerdy scientist, well-meaning guy. If anything, I think he might have more screen time in the Hunger Games than he does in the James Bond franchise. I think so. Mm. In terms but of that screen was time, my, yeah. yeah, that was my entry to him. And then I actually think, Ned, you were the one that sent me this video. It was, I think it was, an, I can link it in the show notes. It was a little like IMDb video that was pointing out that a lot of actors will maybe start in smaller roles where they're sort of typecast a lot and then expand that into like diverse leading roles. And if anything, Jeffrey Wright has had the opposite path where actually earlier in his career, he had... His, his roles that were more like leading man roles were earlier in his career. And then he almost transitioned more into this mainstream character actor that would pop up here and there. Until I think Westworld maybe is the thing that really solidified him as something closer to a leading man now. And that was the other thing where it felt like Jeffrey Wright moved from, you know, character actor we could recognize but didn't know to maybe something that's like, oh, yes, this is Jeffrey Wright. I know who he is. It feels a little like the size of project he was doing. Definitely, there was like a big notch shift somewhere around the time of Casino Royale. And that might have, might have been, you know, that he had a little bit more range of the characters he was playing when he was doing smaller, more like indie or like indie adjacent projects. And then he kind of got pegged with this one type in the mainstream, as I agree, sort of like cerebral weirdos, you know, brainy. Mm-hmm. I don't know, Joe, what do you, what do you, uh, where do you go with Jeffrey Wright? So I think that the the film that I think of, that I, I, I can't shake this, is the performance I think of is Source Code. Because I just remember... Yeah. Ooh, a Source Code fan. Yeah, I remember seeing that in the cinema. And I was a, I was a fan of Moon. So I was uh, seeing Source Code in the cinema. And um, I just remember thinking, wow, the the swings that Jeffrey Wright, who was someone that I was, you know, kind of aware of, but without, you know, kind of probably like, oh, it's that guy, rather than really being, being you know, too familiar with his work. I just remember thinking wow, this guy is taking some wild, wild swings. And I think it's working for in in spite of it really it feels like all of the component parts of this performance shouldn't work. I think it does. And that's a film actually that's Duncan Jones a filmmaker who I've struggled with since then, but that's my favorite of his films and I really like that performance. And then yeah, I probably probably when I say, you know, I knew who he was before that, it probably was because, you know, I'd spotted him turning up in a couple of Bond films as as Felix and and then actually I think so I, I watched the first season of Westworld and kind of found myself um, a little bit exhausted by it and and, and didn't <laughs> and didn't follow up. So I, from a TV perspective, I know him more from Boardwalk Empire, which right. yeah. is a show I kind of sampled early on and then fell off of. And then back when I was in my um, in in my in a previous life, I was a film writer and was commissioned to um, interview Terence Winter for Boardwalk Empire. And I think that was for the season two Blu-ray. So I was like, oh, I should catch up. So I watched the first two seasons and I was like, oh, this is a show that if you stick with it is actually quite, you know, there's there's so much t- acting talent on the screen and there's, you know. Yeah. And, and I, I remember sitting through every season of that show and five or six episodes in being a bit like, where is this going? And then the last three episodes of every season being like, this is the best show on TV. Why is no one talking about this? It's like, oh, because the first seven episodes seem like they're going nowhere. But yeah, I just, you know, he was one of the character actors on that show who turned up and kind of played villainous. Um, or not even just, I think he was a little bit more straight villainous. Uh, but, you know, 
people like Michael Kenneth Williams and Jeffrey Wright who would who would come into that show or would exist on the edges of that show. Oh, and who's the who's the other guy I'm thinking of that came in for a uh, Rose Byrne's husband? What's his name? Bobby Cannavale. Bobby Cannavale. That's right. Yeah. But yeah, so th- that's that was my introduction to Jeffrey Wright on the small screen, I guess. And obviously, mm-hmm. you know. In TV, you get to spend a little bit longer with, with these actors and, and get to know them. And I would say now, you know, I know, I know we're probably going to dig more into, into Bond as we go on. But Jeffrey Wright is one of these actors who... Um, so Empire Magazine used to have this... Uh, used to talk about this concept of the 27 percenter. And yeah. that's... I'm not familiar with this. So a 27 percenter is an actor who is probably not going to be opening a movie, you know, is not going to be above the title on something that will get you out to the cinema. You know, mm-hmm. maybe maybe he'll be... He, she will be the lead of an, uh, an indie film at, at some point. But broadly, they're a character actor and they're the kind of person that you go, oh, that guy's in it. And because Jeffrey Wright is in this, I am automatically 27% more interested in whatever this is. <laughs> and it and it doesn't it doesn't matter whether it's good or bad. You know, it could be a bad film that is 27% less bad because he's there. Or mm. it can be, oh, it's a Hunger Games movie or a, or a Bond movie and I'm 27% more interested because... Uh, he's in this one, and I and I get to watch him doing whatever he's gonna do for his two or three scenes. And yeah, he is one of those quintessential guys for me. When I think of twenty seven percenters, I think of I think of Jeffrey Wright. Yeah, That's a very good call. That is a very that is a very accurate thing because yeah, I think as we, it's all these little side roles. There are all these movies that I think we'll reference through this where you would never do you know a Syriana episode. That was just one I remember seeing him in. I actually did see Basquiat, which we're going to cover next week, relatively early. So I had this clear it's idea a of him. Role for him. Yeah, exactly. It's a early in his career indie movie leading role. But I'd seen him in, you know, this and that. I think Manchurian Candidate. I'm trying yeah. to Hamlet. He plays the gravedigger in the very weird Ethan Hawke Hamlet. But it's lots of little things like this. And whenever you see a video that is about him or a podcast where they interview him, like everyone's always using that term underrated because I think he just is sort of a total like workhorse solid. It's, you know, you wouldn't use the phrase in the background, but certainly like around the, around the periphery of a movie, but you know, like when he's on screen, he's going to bring it. We're not going to do a source code episode for this series. Outrageous. I, well, (laughs) it's a big one for for me. Yeah. Maybe when we do Jakey G or uh, Michelle Monaghan, we'll come back to source code. nickname I've never said before. I don't know why I just said that. Like it was something I regularly called Jake Dylan If you hadn't it's called not. attention to it, Caroline, I would have been like, oh, yeah, Jakey G. It would have stuck in my head. <laughs> One other Jeffrey Wright thing I wanted to point out, actually, is yeah. I, as much as I think of him as, like, beloved, wonderful actor, I also think of him as someone I follow on Twitter, just, like, for their political and mm. social takes. Like, mm-hmm. he's active on Twitter almost more in the way that, less in the way that an actor is and more just in the way that, like, a Twitter person is. Yeah, like, I kind Twitter of forget activists. sometimes I'm, like, looking at his tweets. I'm like, oh, right, this is also the actor that I really respect, not just this guy I follow on Twitter who seems really cool. Well, his bio, so his his handle, if you're curious, is at jfreewright. So it's J-F-R-E-E-W-R-I-G-H-T. And his bio is part-time actor, full-time kook. So <laughs> yeah, that's how he self-identifies. And, yes, lots of... Regular political retweets, as well as also being like 
you know, what if comes out this year? Enjoy, take yeah, a look. Yeah. But uh, here I am in a new Bond movie. But he seems the to spend a lot. obligated tweets. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. He does those. He does those press junket style things decently well, and you know he's he's fun on interviews. But he also just he seems to spend a lot of time on Twitter. I mean, his feed is very active. So I know, I love it. <laughs> um, so in the future weeks, we're gonna you know go back to the beginning of Jeffrey Wright's career. We're gonna do more of a chronological walk through some of the highlights as we go along. But we are starting it right now with the timely, topical project that, as mentioned, I think has introduced many people to this actor. And uh, that is his work in the James Bond films, particularly his third appearance as the CIA agent Felix Leiter in the 25th James Bond film, No Time to Die, which came out just, I guess, last week in the U.S., two weeks ago in the U.K. Um, Before we unbox this new film, can we just discuss everyone's relationship to the James Bond franchise as it stood before watching this. Yeah, and let's clarify, we're going to go spoiler-free. We'll give a spoiler warning when we start diving into No Time to Die more specifically, but if you're listening and you haven't seen it yet, we'll we'll warn you before we we jump into that territory. Yeah. But I feel like Joe, I want to hear your I feel like my sense I've gotten from you is that you are a similar to Ned, a, a self-proclaimed Bond boy. Uh, yeah, I don't think I've heard the uh, the phrase Bond Boy. <laughs> well, today, it's like Jakey G. It's one we're just coining in the moment. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, I think I, I might be in danger of having my passport taken away if uh, if I wasn't. <laughs> sure. Uh, so, uh, and you know, for context, so the this Bond does tend to come out in the UK a week earlier, so it can have that big, you know, Leicester Square premiere and. In the UK, you know, like, the the only... It's very rare that movie news would crack the real news, but Bond does. So when, when we're on the hunt for a new Bond, that's the kind of stuff that the tabloids report on. And, you know, when... when I remember when Daniel Craig was cast, um, I remember the front pages of the papers being like, Blonde Bond? What? <laughs> that's right. Um, that's wow, right. Honestly, echoing my thoughts exactly. The controversy <laughs> around Daniel Craig, I remember. Yeah, and and so you know, in in the UK, Bond is a is a big deal. You know, obviously not for everyone, and I think that there has you know increasingly, as there probably has been globally, but increasingly been a discussion around Bond's relevancy in the twenty first century, given you know some some of the stuff that he has done on screen over his now near 60 years but it's you know as the, as the box office as the opening weekend in a year where we're coming out of a pandemic showed um bond is you know the appetite for bond in the uk is as voracious as ever so i think you know it performed from what i can tell like a solid blockbuster but a smaller opening than venom in the us whereas here it broke you know it, it it beat the opening weekend of skyfall inspector which is mm-hmm. you know at this time in this year i was yeah. just stunned by now to be fair in america venom has the importance that bond has in england of course <laughs> as we all know tabloids want to know who's really playing carnage in icon the yeah joe did you grow up like has this yeah. been yeah, have yeah. you felt this way about bond your whole life so um Bond was one of the fixtures of kind of um, 
so I guess the, the the equivalent of your network TV in in the UK. So um, one of our main channels, which produces now, you know, your kind of um, Downton Abbey's and your your more your prestige British dramas, ITV. Sure. They used to show a Bond movie just about every Wednesday night when I was younger. And so when I was like seven, eight years old, I would go to um, football, or for your American lessons, soccer training after school. Um, <laughs> although ironically, I now call your football football. Um, um, <laughs> You're a Packers fan, aren't I'm, you? Yeah, I'm a, a big Packers fan. Um, almost as big a Packers fan as I am. No, probably it's close. Packers and Bond are way up there. Um, and um, and yeah, I am. Um... This is like bangers and matches, Packers and Bond. <laughs> I mean, that sounds great. And then and a new NFL season and a new Bond movie arriving in the same month. You can oh tell. Oh my god. Um, yeah, so I, I used to I used to go to uh, I used to get home from training and eat my warmed up tea that my you know like my sister had been having at home, and I would I would I would sit down in front of ITV and watch whatever Bond movie was on that week, and we would talk about and you know this would be you know it would they would show them in order over you know like twenty weeks it would be we've gone from Doctor No to this, and I think what they probably what it probably was was. I, another American UK translation, but autumn slash fall viewing. You know, it was like that was the time of the year that they showed the bonds each year, and then they'd put them back on the shelf, and they'd come out the following year. And um, you know, I, I would, I would just, it would just be a habit of, all right, I want to sit down and watch this next one to find out what happens in this. And at, at that age, I think I was most into the the Roger Moore ones. They were a little bit more tonally appropriate probably for me at that age and um you know i loved stuff like um you know the henchman like jaws and the gadgets and what car was he going to be doing and and you know like the the cliche checklist of bond as a kid that was what i was really into i was like mm-hmm. you know you, you know what's the title sequence gonna look like this time mm-hmm. you know it just when's he gonna say shaken not stirred yeah yeah all all of that all of that stuff Although, you know, ironically, Shaken Not Stirred is one of those things that doesn't actually pop up in Bond very much at all. It's, really? Uh, uh, is yeah, it really one of those Yeah, things? I think it was that Sean Connery only actually says it once. And then huh. Roger Moore was like, oh, that's Sean's line. I, I don't want to say it. Interesting. Yeah, I think that it's... That was a good trivia. I think it's a bit like, you know, uh, Beam Me Up Scotty. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I actually have a... I think my my childhood connections to Bond are not actually that dissimilar to what you're describing, except instead of ITV, for me, it was our channel TCM, Turner Classic Movies, which plays like old movies. And now I think I've said this on past podcasts, but that was just like a channel that was frequently on when I was growing up. And I, for me, it was more the Sean Connery era, I think. I don't have super strong memories, but like whenever those were on, it was like, oh yeah, this is a fun thing to watch. And like, sometimes we'd go rent them For me, it was like my associations with Bond were like just this really campy, fun, silly 60s thing that I watched as a kid. I'm not sure I ever even saw like full movies. Like to me, it was like you came in, you watched a couple fun scenes. That was enough for you. And then I'm pretty sure that I watched some of the Pierce Brosnan ones, I'm sure, in the 90s when I was growing up. And then I have to say, like part of my job as a film and TV critic is feeling like I need to watch every single movie and every single TV show that has ever been released yeah. or made. <laughs> part of the the way I personally cope with the stress of that is that sometimes I will just pick a franchise yep. or a thing and, and say, I, 
I'm not going to engage with that in any way. For TV, it's Black Mirror. <laughs> like when Black Mirror got popular, I just thought I don't have time for this and I will never think about it and I will never feel any guilt about not engaging with it. And in the movie sphere, it's definitely Bond. Like okay. I was like, I, I, I can't, there's too many things. I don't care. A lot of people love this and are taking care of <laughs> covering it. I just can't engage in any way. I'm pretty sure that I have seen that I saw Skyfall at some point. I think maybe I'd seen a couple of the Craigs. I don't know. They're movies that like, like this week I did catch up on a couple other of the Craig movies. I watched Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace, but like, could I describe to you what happened to them? Could I describe to you what happened in No Time to Die? No, they come, they, <laughs> they wash over me. They leave my brain. I, I don't dislike them, but they just are not the sort of things that like stick in my mind in any way. So if I were to ask my follow-up question, Caroline, of your favorite Bond films. Truly could not even begin <laughs> to like have an opinion. Like sure. I can't describe to you how neutral I feel about <laughs> just the whole concept of Bond. Yeah. You save yourself by volume a lot of screen time if you uh, just agree to write those off. I agree. I, I had a similar a similar thing where I feel like, the, I don't know, they just sort of like pop in and out of my life at times. There have been times where I go very hard on them for a little while, and then I kind of let them go for a few years, and then I come back to them. My relationship with it does have everything to do with my dad, who's a big fan, uh, and we got him the like the mega blu-ray set i think for christmas two years ago or something that had had them all now you gotta get um no time to die separately when it comes out on yeah we'll see what he thinks about it yeah see if he wants it the idea of buying a bond box set had bothered me for a while because i was like but it's never going to be complete (laughs) (laughs) that's right and if it is complete that suggests that something has gone wrong and do i want to own it um But when it was the 50th anniversary of Bond in 2012, obviously that Skyfall's release was was uh, was there to tie in with that, and there was um, there was a really good documentary which I believe was called Everything or Nothing. That if you're a Bond fan, it it did some. The only shame was that I think um, Sean Connery was was not interested in in doing any of the stuff around the anniversary. Hmm. But yeah, that the, it. The the 50th anniversary was this real sweet spot where I was like, oh yes, this is this is reminding me of all of these reasons why I love Bond, and you know there were exhibitions like I went to a uh, a costume exhibition at the oh, Barbican yeah. in London, which was really fantastic. And in fact, that same um, I was visiting Toronto, I think the year after, and that same exhibition was in Toronto when I was there, and I was like, well, it'd be rude not to. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, and but yeah, so I I bought the 50th anniversary anniversary blu-ray box set and it had a little slot left in the left in the back to put the skyfall disc in when you got it so i've got my i've got my 50th anniversary set since then only one movie has been released on blu-ray and that was spectre and i decided that at this current time i do not need to own spectre on (laughs) blu-ray i will wait until the uh the 50th to 100th year blu-ray box set to own that one get a second box set (laughs) without having to feel like you're closing a door on bond i think you could say i'm just gonna now pick up the first half a century and then yeah. in yeah. uh in what's what's the what'll be the hundred year of dr no is that 63 60, 60, 62 62 yeah so we're 60 years next year so 40 years to go great 40 okay. years you could pick up the great uh, we'll check back in we'll do another podcast episode two. for the listen if 40 i years from now if i make it to the 100th anniversary of bond i'll be a happy man <laughs> <laughs> sure if bond does that'll be yeah. impressive too although yeah. it does feel slightly like 
you know, like when people talk about, oh, aren't you worried about theater being a dying art? I'm like, if it was going to die, it would be dead. There's been enough. Yeah. There's been enough to kill it for years. And I, I do feel maybe that's sort of true of Bond. I suppose if they do 10 really bad ones now, they could jeopardize the longevity of the franchise. I guess back before Casino Royale, it felt kind of in peril. Twice. It was in serious peril twice, and actually, I think probably a really good parallel to draw for you guys, um, knowing one of your other points of interest, is Doctor Who. So Yeah, I've been thinking about that too. So Do- Doctor Who is kind of the TV version of Bond, and mm-hmm. I, th- I think the only... The, the big difference between them is that both of them kind of nearly died in the 80s. Um, so the whilst I think they hold up a lot better now, the... Um, the Timothy Dalton Bonds were not massively critically commercially successful at the time. And I think it's between 89 and 95 there isn't a Bond film, so six years. And I think mm. it was genuinely thought at that point that, you know, um, the, the, the Bond might be done, that that was it. Um, and obviously they're bringing Martin Campbell, and Martin Campbell directs GoldenEye, which is this massive, massive success. And then you've you've got those four films. It's and then and this I guess is where it's slightly different to Doctor Who. That Doctor Who kind of had the swing in the nineties. It didn't work, and it went dormant until the mid two thousands when it picks mm-hmm. back up and hasn't lost. Well, mostly hasn't lost steam since. And the same is true of Bond. Right in the mid two thousands, Martin Campbell reinvigorates the franchise again with Casino Royale, and it's been a big deal since. Even though it has been for various production reasons a lot more sporadic but I, I i did just want to add a little bit of context to my experience of bond which is that so i i was born in 1989 so when uh, goldeneye came out i was six my parents weren't taking me to watch goldeneye in the cinemas so i was you know my bonds were the you know like i say i think Moore was my favorite back then but it was the it was the connery and moors mm-hmm. uh the you know at, at that point i was i was less interested in uh, in the dalton ones and i couldn't understand this george lazenby one it just felt like a, a, a nonsense to me that oh <laughs> this never happened to the other fella and so I kind of like I kind of my fandom skipped Brosnan. I only really you know interesting revisited even the... though theoretically you could have been the perfect age yeah. to be the target audience for those movies. Yeah, because I think I probably ten years older, however old we were, I'm the same age as you. And then like, oh yeah, fun can't be action yeah. adventure movie. And they were current. Yeah. So I kind of felt like I'd I I'd missed the Brosnan era, and you know I'd I'd watched. I'd watched some of them on on DVD when I was, you know, in my early teens, and was like, oh, I, I don't know, fine, whatever. Um, but I kind of, I kind of like the Roger Moore and the Sean Connery stuff. And then Casino Royale turned up again, you know, a, a point where it felt like Die Another Day might have potentially killed the Bond franchise, and there's mm-hmm. some wild stories about what the director wanted to do there. Um, apparently, there was Say a, more. there was something that was going to happen. I think it was, uh, I think it's Lee Tamahori who directed that, and he had suggested that they should do a scene where Bond goes up to uh, Skyfall X, goes up to Scotland. It goes into this room and goes and meets the the original double O, the original James Bond, uh, and oh. the, with the suggestion that you know the continuity there would have been that this is just the latest James Bond, and James Bond is merely a name 
game that 007 agents take. Mm. That would have been that would have been interesting. One of the things I kind of love about Bond is it's um, you know you, you can't you can try and apply a continuity to it, but it, it's impossible. And you can even try and say, well, that's one continuity and that's a different continuity, but it doesn't quite work. And and so yeah, when when Casino Royale turned up, that was the first Bond I'd seen in a cinema, probably on on release, mm-hmm. and um, was lucky enough at the time that my friend was uh, we were going to see the film, and his friend was a manager of the cinema, and we said, oh, can we? Well, no, this is going to be really difficult, but can we get in opening night for Casino Royale? And the manager was like, oh, I don't. I think it's going to be really tough. You know, every screening sold out. Just look, hang about. And if I can get you into one, I'll get you into one. And she came out. She was like, okay, look, I'm going to, I'm going to usher you in. I'll usher you in. It's just about to start. And we walked into this cinema and it was completely empty. And, and <laughs> uh, she, uh, the, like a screen that wasn't being used. She had got Casino Royale set up on the projector there. And oh, so, oh my that's so gosh. nice. And it's, it is to this day, like one of my all time favorite cinema experiences watching that film for the first time which like i adore casino Royale, and i felt mm-hmm. i fell in love with bond all all over again at that point and you know a couple of times since then you know i am currently uh my friend and i have been doing franchise watches over zoom uh since the start of lockdown and we did uh lord of the rings and the hobbit and we did mission impossible and we're currently working our way through the bonds we got up to octopussy last weekend so we're uh just over halfway yeah i think casino Royale was the thing that cemented it and in in spite of a couple of challenging installments since then i haven't looked back yeah ned what is your what is your full timeline of this like were you similarly like craig was a turning point for you you said you watched growing up because your dad was into them i had definitely a I think a strong enough relationship with all five, is it James Bond actors prior to, I still sort of think of Craig as like the new Bond. Mm -hmm. Like I really had a status quo that went from Connery to Brosnan. And I definitely was a big fan of the Brosnan movies, even the sort of dubious ones. Well, not Die Another Day. When Die Another Day came out, I was, I could recognize like, this is really awful. And I rewatched some scenes from it recently and was astounded at how, yeah. sort of unbearably 2000 whatever it is <laughs> um the editing and the music are just nutty but but i really like goldeneye um my intro was definitely goldfinger which is the one that my dad really likes i i felt like yeah you could kind of drop into any point in the franchise like it's interesting to think that for many years i had a, a relationship with james bond i liked those checklist items you talked about joe before i could really clearly identify the difference because you know when you're like eight years old you don't know the difference between a 60s set movie and a 90s set movie you just are like yeah it's james bond doing james bond thing it's like Mm, unless you're a weirdo like me and you grow up making lists of when every disney animated movie came out so you could (laughs) organize your thoughts in a timeline it's (laughs) it's funny you mention that because i don't know maybe eight years old is wrong but 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 i i definitely think also of like as a kid you don't know the difference initially between snow white and aladdin you're like those are just animated disney movies and then later on you start to say like oh i completely see the way in which their products their time but i didn't have that for a while and then i guess i could sort of sort them into connery old Mm -hmm. uh brosnan new roger moore middle i didn't love the roger moore ones as a kid i like them more now i think i have some fun i i recently watched a spy who loved me 
which despite having i think a finale that drags is like a pretty pretty great film up till then and i think that's unequivocally the best roger moore as well yeah it's i mean it's got some cool spy stuff it's got some serious like spy craft in it which i do like in my james bond films some like go meet the contact oh the contact has been killed as you said jaws is a great character I recently rewatched *License to Kill*, which I think is quite good. That's a Timothy Dalton one. I rewatched it, and it was my first time seeing it since I was a kid because it's—I think—the first one that was made like post *Die Hard*. And there are these like grisly scenes of violence, including one in which you know the villain kills one of his underlings by throwing him in like a pressure chamber, which causes him to like pop. And that was so traumatizing to me as a nine-year-old or whatever that I never went back. Yeah. But but I think uh, I think Dalton's fun. I definitely think that when Craig came on the scene, I remember the whole blonde controversy and like, will he be good? And I think I was mainly just pulled in by there's so much cool stuff that hits you so hard and so fast in that movie. I mean, parkour, parkour. Yeah. the Hardcore parkour, uh, hardcore parkour coming like crashing into the pop culture and then like you know, again, like like that scene, the effect that that has on, on pop culture is like so strong. That parkour scene is thrilling. And now when you watch it back, I kind of think that it, it like, because parkour isn't really something that you do see in, certainly not in good um, action blockbusters very, mm-hmm. uh, or, or certainly when it was attempted, it wasn't done very well, mm-hmm. that you watch that parkour sequence and you're like, this actually feels really distinct and because and and because it's straight into Africa as well, and it's and it's this and it's on a construction site, and you're not doing the whole which the Craig era has got back to of look at these gorgeous landscapes. Let's go visit this other glorious pocket of the world that you know Bond used to be this travelogue in the '60s when people didn't travel internationally. It was like, yeah. look, here is Jamaica, British audiences like. Could you imagine a place like this? Yeah, and 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 the Craig introduction is just straight away. This is gritty. We're do, we're we're di- mm-hmm. we're diving up scaffolding on a construction site. Yeah, I swear I love. Yeah, it so it's. Much. <laughs> I think the scene. I think the scene, as you say, is totally distinctive and totally satisfying. And the stunts and the introduction to his Bond. I mean, clearly one of the things they wanted to do with him is like explore this blunt instrument is the phrase that Mm -hmm. is used, I think, several times. And that's, you know, it's clearly so clearly going on there. But but yeah, also like that the black and white prologue of that film is just Mm -hmm. so tasty. So I think I was really pulled in by the coolness of Casino Royale. Yeah. And And the song and the opening title sequence. I love the song. Yes. so from from every side early on. Yeah. And I've I felt like it dipped in my impression a little bit in the intervening time. I was like, oh, was I just pulled in by coolness? Is this really And you know, there's there's we can get into all of like Bond's relationship with women, which is, you know, you could write books and books about. And that movie I think does some very cool things with that, but then also viewed fifteen years later on, still has some, you know, mm-hmm. gender politic problems to work out. But on my most recent rewatch of it, I was like, I, I just have a great affection for that movie. I think it's doing very cool. From the very beginning, it is very interested in the psychology and the emotional life of Bond. And that sets mm-hmm. the tone yeah. for this Craig era, which I really enjoy. Yeah, it's a parallel to like the Batman Begins franchise that we talked about totally. during our Christian Bale series. And that this was the era of like a gritty, grounded reboot a little more maybe of a a psychological origin story in some way 
and like quote unquote grounded. I talk about this on Cinematic Universe a lot, but I think there was a spate of post 9-11 cinema that was a blockbuster cinema that was that. It was, you know, it was, you know, the, the heroes aren't always infallible. Mm-hmm. Stuff might go down and we don't, and, you know, we don't necessarily just want this, this colourful stuff right now. We want, we want a, a, like a dose of gritty realism. Mm-hmm. We want yeah. our heroes to be, to, to, to be, you know, we want to believe that they could help us in the real world. And so they need to exist within it. A more grounded world. Mm. So am I correct in thinking that you both would have been people that were like going to see all the Daniel Craig movies in theaters and then were it like in high anticipation of No Time to Die? That's the kind of position you're both in? Yes, but it's been it's been a, a, a an interesting position to maintain high anticipation for No Time to mm. Die, given that it was supposed to come out in, what was it, April last year? So long. Right. This was like the first big movie to be moved from the via the pandemic like this really felt like this was some sort of turning point notoriously pushed down the 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 track multiple times yeah and early early enough that people were speculating well is it not ready you know which in Mm -hmm. in retrospect seems insane doesn't it that we you know well every movie moved it was just this was this was the first one and probably you know this was one that was big enough that knew if things aren't close to normal, we, we are going to take a big hit on this movie. And mm-hmm. um, Bond was then certainly in the UK was the was the kind of the last domino to fall when it shifted its release date back last November, and um, and it, and that was kind of the thing that prompted a lot of cinemas in this country just to close their doors over over the winter, and you know a lot of them didn't open until like may this year in in may june this year in any capacity after that um and you know there was a lot of you know there was a lot of criticism of i guess universal and and eon at the time for making that decision that you know i think people at the time feared could uh, you know it was it was like james bond is the last person who should be cowardly enough to run away from this. Ooh. There was, you know, those 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 were think pieces because I think there was a lot of, you know, this existential threat to cinema and if someone was going to save it, it was James Bond. Hmm. And, you know, that metaphorically, he keeps running. Uh, yeah, that does seem like people attributing their own, I don't know, anxieties and fears upon this. Yeah. And maybe investing this character with a little too much metaphorical <laughs> significance. But... <laughs> But maybe not, you know, it's good to invest things with significance. Can I do a little, like a little broad summary, maybe, to ground us as we get into our No Time to Die thoughts? So for people, we had the pro- we had the Brosnans, yeah. we had a little bit of a break, we've got Daniel Craig comes in with Casino Royale, mm-hmm. people love it. Mm-hmm. You get Quantum of Solace, kind of mixed response. And kind oh, of yeah. hot, hot on the heels, right? Quantum of Solace, which... Quantum of Solace gets rushed into cinemas because of the writer's strike in 2008 mm-hmm. uh, or 2007. And um, and as a result, you know, there was talk about it was, you know, there were scenes being written by Daniel Craig on set because, yeah. because or like, you know, stuff was being rewritten and it's the shortest Bond movie. Um, it has its defenders now. I have held back on revisiting it because I'm doing this Bond rewatch and I'm, I'm, I'm going to once I get, obviously once I get back to the the Craigs rewatch it because I've watched Casino Royale dozens of times, whereas I've watched yeah. Quantum of Solace twice, I think. But yeah, it comes it comes real real fast, and then off the back of that, then MGM get into uh, d- trouble around their sale, and 
MGM is distributing Bond at that time. And um, I'm not sure if you remember the the Hobbit movies were held up because mm-hmm. of this for a long while as well, to the point that Guillermo del Toro had to depart and Peter yeah. Jackson stepped in to direct those instead. So yeah, then there's a then there's a bit of a there's a four year gap then before we get to Skyfall, mm-hmm. which people also love. My sense yes. is that people, yeah. my outsider sense is that for the Craig era, you really have Casino Royale and, and Skyfall, yeah. which I will probably at some point called Spyfall, which is the <laughs> Doctor Who parody <laughs> title that they used at some point. So apologies in advance if I do that. Those are the two that people love, whereas Quantum of Solace and then the Skyfall follow up Spectre are generally the ones that people are like not big fans of yeah the odd number ones people like the it's the opposite of the star trek thing the odd numbers are good and the even numbers are generally i think i mean i i think quite bad i think quantum solace i i rewatched it last week and i think it's terrible um mainly i would lay that on the feet of the director and the Mm -hmm. editing department I've never seen a movie, at least a blockbuster, that I think is so visually incomprehensible. I mean, it's the like mm. the absolute zenith, or maybe you'd just say the the bottom, the nadir of like shaky cam, constant cuts every half a second. I mean, I was watching. I like there's just a moment in one of these like foot chases that I turned my monitor over to Emily, and I was like, okay, watch, cut, 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 and it's like it's like that. And this this constant gimmick of like intercutting a scene with some other parallel thing like the opera or a horse race, I find it totally to be a really ineffective visual language. And yeah, I also think the script is really kind of uh, choppy and not that cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it feels disappointing if you are a big fan of Casino Royale because it's dealing with the emotional fallout of that movie mm-hmm. that... It, it did. I remember walking out of the cinema, having seen Quantum of Solace, going like, ah, just feeling really deflated. But yeah. I think notably, and and this is one of my, uh, I, I've got a few hot takes for the, for the Daniel Craig era Bond, some of which I can reveal before spoilers and some after. But I kind of, I, I kind of think, feel that Bond, since its 90s relaunch has always felt like it is striving to be the relevant franchise and i think there was a and i also think that bond particularly in the craig era has always been best when it's been proactive rather than reactive and i think you can kind of see in those big misses like casino royale is a movie that goes what is bond now what does in the same way that goldeneye does so you know as you said, Casino Royale is the the blunt instrument. Let's let's explore him as a as an emotional being, and not and uh, you know he's a blunt he's a blunt instrument. But what is he beneath that? Mm-hmm. Golden Eye had the you're a Cold War relic. How are you relevant today? And then you and then you know the, the movie then attempts to answer that question. And I think that you know those are great. The, you know that's Bond try just that's Bond embracing being Bond and what it is. And looking for the interesting nooks and crevices within what exists in that franchise, and and you know particularly in Casino Royale, going back to some of the the Fleming source material to to really it's closer tonally to the Fleming source material than anything really had been before. Yeah, and then Quantum of Solace, I think notably all that editing stuff you're talking about, it is the second unit shot by the guy who did the Bourne franchise, and it feels like it feels like Bond going. Ah, Bond's kind of stealing our thunder. Everyone loves that now. How do we be more like that? And so, well, don't yeah. try and be more like that. Just try and be better at what you do. And so then, when Skyfall comes along, 
it's the 50th anniversary and I, and I kind of maintain I don't think Skyfall's a perfect movie mm-hmm. but I think it's the perfect movie for the 50th anniversary and, and, and you know I'm just remembering you know the 2012 Olympics in London we have James Bond and the Queen jumping out of a helicopter <laughs> jumping out of a helicopter oh, you know like the the, 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 the the you know the two icons of Britain <laughs> 007 and and her match I'm 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 a definitely a fan of Bond more than the Queen. Um, <laughs> wow, hot takes coming out. Lilibet versus James. Yeah, are you gonna get are you gonna get kicked out of the country? No, I I I, I describe my um, attitude towards the monarchy as ambivalent. Mm, sure, this is okay. So your attitude towards the monarchy is my attitude towards James Bond. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and Caroline, oh, you're no. kind of a monarchy fan, aren't you? Not to put you on blast. Yeah, more so. I'm definitely more intrigued and interested by the monarchy than I am by James oh. Bond. I will yeah, say. Who contributes more to the British economy? That's the that that's <laughs> another that's another that's always a question in the UK. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> The very final point is then you you then get to Spectre, which I think is a, a really bad Bond movie. And like, I think more for me, Quantum of Solace is disappointing. Spectre is bad. Mm. And Spectre is a movie that for me feels like it's falling into the pull of we need to make this a cinematic universe and it all has to be connected. And, and we have to, we have to like draw the lines between this and this and this and this. It's like, you just had Skyfall, which was a completely self, like Skyfall feels like Goldfinger that you've gone, forget about all of this Spectre stuff in the background. We're just doing a single adventure and it's, it's great. And everyone loves it. And then they've gone, ah, so should we try and get in on this Marvel stuff? Yeah. And I, and I kind of felt like coming out of Spectre and then particularly the direction that the Mission Impossible franchise has gone in over the past four or five years, that in a way that they looked at threat of being overtaken by Bourne in the 2000s, I think they the Bond franchise, you know, you put Fallout and Spectre next to each other and, you know, there are just two movies in a completely different league that are, you know, in terms of action blockbusters. And yeah, spoilers for my thoughts on No Time to Die, but I think it's the... For me, the perfect course correction to that. Without without doing the Last Jedi stuff and going, forget about all of that. We're just gonna. Uh, uh, he has returned. How I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I I just think that No Time to Die gets it right, and I was I was very very satisfied with what we got. Caroline, Ned, what were oh, you? Well, I want to ask you real quick. What was your had you had what was your Spectre thoughts? Because that was the one that was before this. I th- and a lot of people didn't. Like I it. think Spectre has some good set pieces, but the whole is less than the sum of those parts because of I. I, I also tend to agree that it's a movie being pulled in different directions because it's all about you know it ties itself it tries to tie itself to earlier movies with a kind of like oh there was a man behind the man always mm-hmm. and then it mm-hmm. gets really it feels like all it's doing is establishing what they like a, a runner villain like basically i think okay spoilers for specter if you've missed this they've got christoph waltz who is reprising the sort of 60s early 70s legacy character of like arch villain Arch stavro blofeld and they're like, oh, let's get, you know, everybody loves Christoph Waltz. He'll do that. He'll be all creepy. And we will establish a recurring nemesis for Bond who will survive this film and come back time and time again. And with a with a personal connection to Bond yes, as well. Yes. So he so he's was further spoiler. So it's he's secretly been Bond's like adoptive brother, which is just which I could not get out of my head. This is such a stupid thing, but the um but uh, Austin Powers gold member 
the third <laughs> Austin Powers movie like does the what if James Bond and Blofeld were brothers twist, but it's it does it <laughs> yeah. as the spoof, and then like yeah. fifteen years later you have Spectre yeah. playing it playing it straight. Yeah, I think the air goes out of it, and the climax is really uh, weak. The climax feels like it's attempting to bring Daniel Craig's Bond into the Roger Moore era, mm. and and kind of failing badly. Whereas what I love about No Time to Die is, I think it is a it's a sixties Bond movie that makes sense that 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 is that plausibly exists in twenty twenty one. It it just it in terms of those Bond boxes that need ticking. You know, it, it, it ticks all of them in a way that I don't think any Bond movie has been able to do since since Sean Connery, you know, hung up the tux. And, uh, you know, probably the closest is Goldeneye, but Goldeneye, you know, is a very 90s blockbuster. I don't, No Time to Die didn't make me think, oh, this is like that franchise or that's like that franchise. It made me think, this is like You Only Live Twice. <laughs> that's interesting, I am very excited to get into this discussion because I can see what you're saying about No Time to Die, but I would also say that particularly after my first viewing, and I have now seen it twice, Whoa. I... That is like six hours of watching this one I know, movie. I know. Well, I'm on a staycation this week. I'm not working this week, so I could do something outrageous like watch a three-hour movie twice. But, Great. but I would say it also is a movie that is interested in doing, as Craig films have done before... Some like, ooh, we've never broken this inviolate rule of the James Bond universe before, and now we're gonna do that. Yes. Yeah, no, that that is but in in a way that feels like a natural progression of what they have been doing with Craig since Casino Royale. Yeah. And so that's what I mean. It it kind of it feels of a piece with the Craig era, but also like it is really embracing that screen legacy of the character as well. Yeah. Okay, this is good. I really wanted to lay all that out, mainly to draw a contrast to the way you guys went into this movie, which was so much detailed knowledge, so much like connection to this franchise, versus the way I went into this movie. A, I've never seen a James Bond movie in a theater before. Oh, B, wow. I definitely haven't seen Spectre. I'm pretty sure I saw Spy, uh, Skyfall. See, I almost did it. I saw. I think <laughs> I saw Skyfall. I'm pretty sure I saw Skyfall. And like, I think I'd seen either half of like Casino Royale or Quantum of Solace or something. So I'm going in in a way that I actually think maybe more people do than we think about sometimes. Just like, oh, there's a Bond movie in the theater. I'll go see that. Yeah. So, yeah. And so I just went in completely cold. And I would say, like, (laughs) again, I just kind of felt ambivalent. Like, I did not have a bad time watching this movie. I wouldn't. There were parts about it I really liked. It felt very long. But it just kind of, like, washed over me. And I don't think if we had been not been doing this podcast, so I felt like I had to have a few more thoughts about it. I would have just been like, great, saw that, and I probably won't think about now it, it again. Now it roll away. Yeah. I think it is, I, I think it's a much more rewarding movie for, yeah, someone who is, like, like yeah, yeah, who has Who's been invested invest- in the mythology in, in, of it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I don't know if mythology is the right word because I because I, like I said I, I I do think there's something kind of wonderful about the fact that the continuity of Bond doesn't really all stack it, it, it does it, it doesn't fit and that you do you can't there there is there's no possible explanation that can land all of these movies in a in a single continuity. No, but I think just I think just being being invested in that character totally. and so I, and and I think that that is more that's the Craig era part of it but also the but also the idea of that character 
and what he represents and what he's represented over the years and the changes that he's been through because I kind of I kind of feel so when I listen to your podcast right when I'm listening to Roll Calling the fit that you know aside from the discussion of the film that the side of the side of the actor that you're discussing that I'm always really interested in is the screen persona and how that persona is kind of crafted and built up because like I don't know anything about Christian Bale's personal life right I don't I don't and like if there was a if there was a front page article on a newspaper about Christian Bale I probably wouldn't read it because I don't mm-hmm. care but I'm really I, I am really invested in his screen persona yeah and whilst I'm aware that we're on a Jeffrey Wright episode <laughs> I am interested in the Bond persona and you know it's why I kind of feel like all of the you know all of the criticism and the uh, you know the questioning about the relevancy of bond in in 2021 is is completely legitimate and i think it's been so i think it's something that the that the franchise has slowly been trying to grapple with and i think that there is a you know there's an there's an interesting and it's it's i, I think craig has been really good at playing this as a really interesting thing about the craig bond persona that is the movies explore or, or or are more interested in his more assholeish behavior <laughs> which in the 60s and the 70s was just presented as this is this is strong masculinity mm-hmm. right this is like glamorous this is, in a way this is this is suaveness whereas i i think there are moments in there's a particular moment in skyfall that was heavily criticized and, I, and for me that that the whilst I I can completely I can completely understand why people thought that that moment was really distasteful. I thought it was more of a criticism of the character and more of a and you know like this is this is a guy who in Casino Royale when you know after Vespers died he he says the the bitch is dead and yeah. and and that's fasc- that's fascinating after having seen the way that that he was with her and mm-hmm. the impact that he had on. And so yeah, I I think that for me. I think, though, you know, in terms of future of the franchise and certainly where we've got to with Craig is, I think it, I think it's maybe a really positive thing to have a character like Bond who is still really interesting to audiences that you can actually explore that toxic behavior through. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not, I'm not sure we've got many other, I'm not sure we've got many other examples of that. Like he feels almost like you know he is, he is shredding that anti-hero to hero line mm-hmm. very delicately but in in a way that he's james bond he is hero um but you know let's explore those that that privilege let's ex- explore that psychology that you know has caused him to behave in certain ways <laughs> i think i think you're absolutely right that it seems like daniel craig as an actor and the people writing the movies have been very interested in exploring trying to find a psychological origin for some of those things that, as you say, were just kind of put in at a time when our idea of like the, we didn't have as a culture, such a critical eye to the idea of a guy who is like sleeping with three different women, two of whom die in the span of like a week's time in a movie. We're like, oh yeah, that rules. And it sounds like, it feels as though one of the main projects of the Craig arc, particularly as a, a thing that has, psychological continuity is to say to basically in his introduction invest him so deeply in that Vesperlind relationship then have him feel betrayed and be like from now on you see a guy who whose womanizing is not viewed as just being like you know the sexiest man alive but is seen as being a guy who like pathologically is unable to form 
meaningful relationships and is always keeping people at a distance. And I do like how that plays into Spectre and the No Time to Die as they sort of move this relationship with Madeline Swan to the front, uh, which I, I think one of my spoiler-free thoughts would be this film pulled Spectre up a bit for me because I found that relationship really implausible or just unfun in Spectre. The most sort of like unintentionally horrifying moment of Spectre is this moment where they're driving to the villain base in a car and she's like, I'm scared, James. And then it cuts to this close-up of his like, like knobbly old man hand comforting her like child's hand. And I'm like, oh, I just don't feel it. Mm. And they, I just don't think they have like particularly good chemistry or writing in that first yeah. film. And I think it's slightly improved in this one. The things they choose to do with their relationship and the plot does make me interested in this relationship, maybe just by continuing to explore it. But I do think they have got an ongoing project about Bond's ability to form relationships, which just to say real fast, that's, I think the thing that I love most about Skyfall in this last watch is that it's a movie that's sort of posits like maybe his strongest relationships are with his co-workers. It's really like him and M, mm. him and Q, him and Moneypenny, all have mm-hmm. these like great rich relationships in Skyfall that are sort of like they don't have the baggage that his romantic relationships do. And it's sort of like, I don't know, it, like some of the moments of fun in that stem from those relationships, which I really enjoy. And, and you know, I, I can't resist this opportunity. No Time to Die um, re-hits that, in a re- I think, in a really good mm-hmm. way. With the, with those professional relationships and adds the secret source that we were missing in Skyfall, which is our, our good old pal CIA agent Felix. <laughs> Beautiful segue, Joe. <laughs> Beautiful segue. Um, yeah, so Jeffrey Wright is really fun in this. I think so. He's been, as we said, he's been absent for two films. He is introduced mm-hmm. in Casino Royale in a way that is so fun because maybe we should talk a little about the the. The history of Felix Leiter, just very briefly. Sure. So he's been played by eight actors in 11 films, I think. Or t- I, I always forget, the count is so complicated because there are two, if you count the spoof Casino Royale, and then basically there's there's an unofficial contentious James Bond film. Do you want to talk about this? Yeah, the easiest way to delineate is Eon Bonds versus non-Eon. So Eon's the production company that made Dr. No and has made every Bond movie since up until No Time to Die, apart from a movie which um, we should broadly never acknowledge existing <laughs> because it's really bad. And um, it was it was driven by greed and spite. Um, but Never Say Never Again, where uh, Sean Connery reprised the role um, for reasons which are too long and complicated to get into here. But there was... Um, there was a guy who had worked on an early iteration of a Bond script and basically for legal complications ensued that he then ended up owning the rights to a lot of the plot of Thunderball. So Never Say Never Again is a elaborate remake of... Uh, it's a it's a remake of Thunderball without actually including any of the, you know, same names and, and other stuff. I, I think Thunderball's one of the weakest Bond movies to begin with, and I think Never Say Never Again shouldn't have existed. Connery came back and did it because he'd fallen out with Cubby Broccoli and 
Harry Saltzman, who were the you know in charge of the Bond franchise at the time. It's now Cubby's daughter Barbara Broccoli, who's who who runs Eon and and those productions. So yeah, Never Say Never Again kind of doesn't count. And then Casino Royale, the 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 Niven one, or the one where you know it's a spoof where loads of different people play James Bond. There was there was a there was another version where there was a, an American guy um, who who played Jimmy Bond. Um, it, it, in I think that might have been like a TV pilot yeah. or something. But yeah, basically, I think the if we're talking Bond canon. You're talking the Eon films, so you're talking seven Felixes in ten movies, and if you're not, then it's eight yeah, and eleven. But yeah, for for the purpose of this, we can never say never say never again. Again. <laughs> this conversation is fun because all of a sudden I'm realizing how people that aren't into Marvel films hear when I speak about yeah, Marvel yeah, films. Because yeah. I'm like, you guys are saying so many words and I I I am I think I'm following them, but you'll mention a title and a character. I mean, Ned and I were talking last week in a production meeting. Like I had no idea Felix Leiter was a character that existed in the wider James Bond yeah. franchise. Like to me it's sort of like, okay, here's a character that's in this movie. How fun I like Jeffrey Wright. I try to think what his like equivalent is because He's never really a particularly pivotal character, oh. and he's not one of the perennial supporting players. So, you know, it, it, when the next Bond movie turns up, it wouldn't be a travesty if there wasn't a Felix Leiter in that first yeah. installment. But, you know, when when Casino Royale came out and there wasn't a money penny, people were like, you what? What? Yeah. What do you mean there's no money? Th- it's a Bond movie. Where's money penny? So, yeah, Felix kind of, uh, uh, like, occupies this interesting position and and also most of his appearances were in were in the connery era and then he's in the first um roger moore movie and then he doesn't show up again until um the timothy dalton movies so actually so you know he's he's like he's not a constant presence mm-hmm. um and then and then yeah it, it did feel like quite good so yeah and then he's not in the brosnans either so there's no oh, yeah so i went into i went into no time to die cold but then after the fact knowing we were doing this podcast i did not dissimilarly to what i did with jamie lee curtis in the halloween franchise i was like i'm gonna follow her instead of following so the you franchise watched, as a whole. you watch felix so films? i went back and watched casino royale and i watched quantum of uh-huh. so i watched jeffrey oh Wright's i see yeah participation okay. in no ned i did not go watch eight james bond films in the i was past. like did you watch license to kill and, <laughs> no 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 no. i'm following jeffrey okay. wright following him through these three films he's in here's my hot take i think jeffrey wright has better chemistry with daniel craig than any other person <laughs> besides eva green okay. i think I was, jeffrey I was... wright I was about to ask. <laughs> and, but they're neck and neck. Like, I actually think they have phenomenal chemistry. I, like, I think he has better chemistry with Felix, who's sort of his CIA agent ally. He has better chemistry with him than he has with any of the people at MI6. And I want, I, it's like kind of a bummer that we didn't get more um, Felix and James, like, stuff in this movie in particular, in the franchise as a whole. Like, I think it's such a great little dynamic duo they have. See, and this is this is really interesting for, for, for because for me, um, and I was having conversations about No Time to Die with one of my Cinematic Universe co-hosts, uh, Reese Williamson, and um, he was saying stuff and I was like, yeah, but that's not Bond. Like, that's not, that's not what Bond does. Like, he was saying, oh, couldn't, couldn't you have done, like, didn't, don't you think the movie needed more Q and money penny and feel, and I was like, I can see why you think that, but that's not, that's not Bond. That's not what Bond does. Um, and like, for me, the, I, I, I was really glad when I heard, when I heard Felix was coming back for this one, because I think he is one of those, like I say, Jeffrey Wright's 27%er Felix's a character 
that I like. Mm-hmm. But I kind of like the amount that he's in all of these films. Yeah. And 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 I just have to uh, interject to say I think uh, Daniel Craig and uh, Dame Judy also have fantastic chemistry. Sure. I, yeah. I, I also have to disagree with your claim, Caroline. Not because I think you're wrong to say there's mad chemistry between them, but you need to watch Skyfall, which is like a chemistry factory. It's like a lab. It's like the amount... I think Skyfall was the most like fan yeah. fictionable. The like mm-hmm. the charge going between him and Dame Judy Dench, between as I've said, between him, M, Q, Money Penny, and the villain uh, played by Javier Bardem. Yeah, Hardy and Dem. there's a, there's a scene in that movie where Money Penny shaves oh, Bond. Oh my lord! And, <laughs> yeah, and 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 this and this is really the first Money Penny who is broadly ambivalent to the idea of fucking Bond. You know, like. <laughs> Money Penny generally her her vibe is she she's the she's the one who it's unrequited with James and yet that that scene in Skyfall yeah absolutely sizzles and yeah there is like I completely agree there is there's a a little bit of electricity with him and Javier Bardem as well so nice. and Mm. I just and think yeah. you guys are underselling the right. No, 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 no. Craig, no, chemistry. it's There's huge. A scene where they're in a bar in Quantum of Solace, and I was like, I kind of want them to kiss right now. Like, I feel like they are the scene when he grabs his arm on the stairwell and yes. introduces himself and gets like right up in his face, and he's like, "Hey, I'll like spot you in this casino game. Chips. Like, you're better at poker than I am." Yeah. I think as well. So, does it look like we need the money? In <laughs> in those early. Oh God, what a great what a great scene. Um, in. In the early Bonds, Felix was basically just, he's just American James, right? So it's like, here is James Bond, but American. But this is not a Felix Leiter movie, this is a James Bond movie. So James Bond is broadly more competent and saves the day. Even though actually his first introduction in Casino, in sorry, in Doctor No, is to to save Bond, essentially. Bond's got, Bond's got himself a little bit in over his head and uh, Felix turns up and is like... No, oh, you you need some help, buddy. Um, and I I like I don't think it's particularly interesting to get into. I like certain Felix performances more than others. After a while, it kind of feels like when he does turn up, it's for the sake of turning up. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I think Jeffrey Wright. I think what he what he gets really right about this is, whilst he is the American version of Bond. That that means they understand. That doesn't just mean I'm a suave spy, but from the US rather than the UK. That means I understand the world you operate in. I understand what makes you tick. What makes you choose this kind of life? We get each other, and there and there should be that really easy understanding that when we're having these conversations, we can cut the bullshit and we can get to the point because we both we're both on the level here. But Jeffrey Wright isn't playing a Bond. No. You know, he's kind of... If anything, it's he's, like an M. Yeah, well... that's how well, I see it. Well, he's, he's got... He's a little bit more schlubby. Like, he doesn't... He doesn't... You know, in Casino Royale, he doesn't look quite as at home in the tuxedo as as Daniel Craig does. And, yeah, and I, I, I like that take on the performance, which is just to go... We just... We just have... We are very easy company for one another. And I, and I thought, bringing this back to No Time to Die, I thought the scenes that they shared in this of just like the, the relaxed atmosphere of just, here's my old 
my old friend who's turned up again. You know, um, Felix is the one who kind of pulls James back in in this movie. And that's something that in that point of the movie, n- I don't think anyone else could have done. I don't think Money Penny or Q or M could have done it. Ha- it has to be Felix. And Jeffrey Wright sells that. And yeah, equally, there is a scene in this movie, uh, the the last scene that Craig and Wright share together, where equally I was like, uh, they should kiss. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And, and not, but but not even I don't, and not even in a romantic way. It's just like the, these two guys a need bond. to be in. The, the, these need bond. to yes, <laughs> a, um, a, a lighter bond. Yeah, um, <laughs> but yeah, just these two guys need to be intimate with each other mm-hmm. in this moment. Where, uh, yeah, I think that that is yeah, that's that's huge credit to to Jeffrey Wright, who I think ha- completely understands what what part he plays in the Bond Mm. franchise. Mm -hmm. I do think, particularly if you have that sort of lifelong relationship, you do have a familiarity with like, oh yeah, Felix is Bond's American friend. And the choice to bring him back, and I didn't really think about how long it had been, but bringing him back in the way they do in Casino Royale is so handy. And I, you know, we have to end up talking about Casino Royale a, a number of times because that was the sort of establishment of this character. But I do think that, you know, what makes his performance in his three movies fun, Jeffrey Wright's performance fun, is not just in those movies. It's also in conversation with that whole legacy. Mm-hmm. And also just the the fact that when they reveal it in Casino Royale, it's quite late in the film. And they've shown him as yeah. just like, here's this, I don't know, seems like a cool guy who has this sort of chummy across the table connection with bond and when he finally drops it and you realize like oh this is i mean if you're just watching that film and that's all you've seen you're like okay okay he's a cia agent but then to have it have this extra layer of being like oh my god they brought felix back and they didn't we didn't even know it felix and i agree that the way they treat him i mean i i mentioned that line like does it look like we need the money which is so fun because it's it's very like cute and and like jokey and flirty between them but it also I think, like, gets to the root of, like, as you say, they're not just showing a parallel figure to Bond. They're saying, like, a guy who works for the CIA is going to have a completely different way of being because the CIA's operation is completely different. Mm -hmm. Like, this Bond in that moment is sort of, like, agonizing over being unable to get five million more dollars from Vesper Lind to, like, restake. And you just get this, like, flirty wink of, like, oh, the CIA isn't concerned about $5 million. Yeah. And and it's this really interesting ego play as well. So I, so I agree. I love the way that they introduce Felix late and reveal his identity. And in conversation with the rest of the Bonds, you're like, oh, I can trust this guy. If you're a, if you're a Bond fan, mm-hmm. you're like, oh, right. Okay. Yeah, fine. It's Felix. This is cool. And then, but but it's also you know the origin moment for that relationship in in the in the Craig continuity. And it's this it's this really interesting like ego exchange as well, where Felix is going, uh, "You're better at this than me." Um, even though both of us have been picked for this mission because we're both really good at poker you're you're better at this because than we're me. both really good at poker yeah. again guys, i could it's not two, it's I'm 2005 there's a, things, there's a lot of things in the bond movies that i um there were many times in no time to die where i laughed and no one else in my theater laughed and i was like oh i guess that wasn't supposed to be a joke <laughs> 
<laughs> but little I things, just, the mm. balance between the seriousness it's going for and then the inherent goofiness of some of the world building, I find to be like very, like, we are a serious, gritty bond. Also, well, we don't want you to go on the mission, but you're the, you're the best poker player at MI6. So I guess it has to be you that goes on the poker playing mission. Yeah, that's that's what I do like about No Time to Die, though, because I do think No Time to Die is more consciously leaning into the tongue-in-cheek. It's mm-hmm. doing it's doing more of the classic Bond quips and the villain, the villainous plot and the MacGuffin at the centre of the movie. Let's, let's is, flip the spoiler switch. Let's feel free to say whatever we want. Wait, can we, wait, can we before do uh-huh. that, Ned, you actually haven't said your opinion on this movie. You said you saw oh. it twice, but Joe loved it. I was ambivalent. Where are you falling on our spectrum here? I liked it, and I liked it more the second time. My feeling is that the third third act did not keep up my interest in the way the first two did and this to me is a very common issue with films clearly i've said that so many times in this podcast but definitely with james bond films i mean there are a lot of james bond films that i love and then i'm like yeah okay i don't know when they the ship goes in the other side i'm not sure about that so that's broadly speaking my feeling on this one so you're probably between you're halfway between joe and I. yeah and for me it's uh to rank it with craig's it's middle of the pack it's it's lower okay. than casino royale inspector no casino royale and, and skyfall yeah. <laughs> no I've but it's above it. specter and quantum joe is yeah. this your number one of the craig's no i i i love casino royale um but and and i've only seen it once so it's difficult to say but i i think that i would have it second um ahead of skyfall Mm. and then quantum of solace and then uh and then spectre but i i i enjoyed the third act a lot more i've got to say like so i i you know when i'm entering this on my letterbox account as i do a very film i've got it as a four-star movie um a four-star movie that I that I liked more things about it, but I don't think it's perfect. I think the stuff that doesn't work, but actually, um, I I I loved the third act, and the, the, I, I'm I'm someone who on cinematic universe talking about Marvel movies a lot of the time. I'm like, <laughs> right, okay. As soon as soon as as soon as we flip that switch, you kind of lost me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that really wasn't the case mm. for me here. It was it was it was pushing a lot of my bond buttons and um and yeah, stuff that I can't say until we lift the spoiler screen. I, yeah. I think <laughs> I agree. Let's switch it. We're an hour and a half in. We finally clarified our <laughs> opinions on the movie. If you haven't seen No Time to Die, pause it now, go watch it, come back in three hours. <laughs> you can listen to us go full spoiler. So I guess this is your last your last warning. Okay, so we flipped the spoiler switch. Let us discuss the very the very you set off, Mike, the two big spoilers, Joe. What would those? What would be those two big spoilers in your mind? So I think there's a there is a Bond spoiler, mm-hmm. which is James Bond dies in yep, this one. That's a big one. And there's and there's a Felix spoiler, which is that Felix dies in kind of like the early second act yeah. of this one. Yeah. R.I.P. Yeah. If it, if this had not been the last Craig, and he was going to go do more, I feel like Felix's death would have been an even bigger deal. But mm-hmm. it kind of gets overshadowed by the fact that Bond dies as well. I was feeling bad for poor Felix. I do imagine that that means that this is the last we see of Jeffrey Wright in mm-hmm. this role. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I, I am adamant. Is, my that... guess is this is the last we see of all of them. Well, I, 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 great question. I really I really hope it's not. And I think that the uh, what I would love is whatever they decide to do in the future, be that another James Bond movie, movie with a new actor, um, which... 
would be my preference for where they go next in the franchise. Um, and you know, we we can maybe di- maybe discuss later what what that might entail, or whether they decide to do a 007 movie that in you know is a is a British agent who is not named James Bond. Mm. Then that, but I, I if if it was me and I was going down either of those routes, I would be bringing back Ray Fiennes, Ben Whishaw, Naomi Harris, and Lashana Lynch, and just saying, this is you know like what they do with Judy Dench between the Brosnan yeah. and the Craig. And I, and I guess the difference is that Brosnan's Bond didn't die, but the, the you know ultimately and 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 you know there had been rumors that this movie might kill off Daniel Craig's Bond for a while, and the reason I always mm. thought it was believable uh even though that that you know had obviously never happened in a bond movie before was casino Royale was his first mission it would make sense that this is his last mm-hmm. mission um since skyfall they'd basically been saying this guy's over the hill and done and passed it and he's um and he, he's kind of hanging on by a thread yeah. so it, it that it all kind of made sense for me but i think if you can believe coming off the back of how, however many it was at the time like 1920 bonds that now suddenly this is his first mission Sure. Well, then, and this was his last mission, I can buy that the next Bond picks up and, you know, in the same way that Judy Dench was M for Pierce Brosnan and was and specifically, you know, making reference to him being a Cold War relic and not making sense in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that doesn't stack up continuity-wise. I would bring back all of the successful elements because I think all of those people are really good in their roles. Um, and hey, I mean, got, got even even more fun if they brought back Felix as well. Um, <laughs> although, given how regularly that character has been recast, whereas you know, like it was a while after Bond was recast for the first time that they recast any of Money Penny mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and uh, you, you know the the actor who the, uh, you know it literally took the actors playing those characters in in most cases to pass away for them to decide to yeah. recast. Whereas obviously that wasn't the case with Bond. Um, so yeah, I'd lo- I'd love to see them see that bring Jeffrey Wright back, but I do think it's unlikely given He's that gone. Felix. I think yeah, they yeah. felt like this is the time to completely close the book on that relationship. At least I do. I am extremely curious about those those other MI six people we mentioned, but it felt like yeah, this this itself, this little relationship. And this movie, while it doesn't give that much screen time to the Felix relationship, does for I think all the reasons we mentioned. Like, it invests in it as a as a really significant one as they're having this this relationship. What I love is that this was like vacation Felix, mm-hmm. which I sensed as I was watching it for the first time, but especially once I went back and watched Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace, where he's not quite in this same mode, but he meets up. We, James Bond is sort of semi-retired living in Jamaica and Felix meets up with him at a bar and Felix is just like, hey man, like how's it going? Come back and like come with the mission they're with playing us. Their little like, wearing a little drinking you know, wearing, wearing his like, billowing oh, I gotta shirts. hang out with Billy Magnuson, this is so annoying, but like, let's do shots, buddy. And I was like, yes, I love vacation Felix energy. I know that there is a, there's obviously a twist with the Billy Magnuson character, but I do think that that kind of played into, especially, you know, it's around then that we get the reveal of Lashana Lynch and and who she is, even though you know we all knew from the marketing. But there is a, there is a sense with I think with Billy Magnuson being there over Jeffrey Wright's shoulder of like, hey, look, I'm I'm being put out to pasture too. This is the shit that they're replacing mm-hmm. me with. Yeah. Like 
the same way that we always got each other and we've always been simpatico, we both know that this has passed us by. We both know that this doesn't really make sense for us anymore. And you know, I kind of, I kind of need to pull someone back in at this point just to, just to, you know, just to keep this mission alive. And that's why I thought of you. And you know, one last rodeo. It, mm-hmm. it feels like that. Yeah, it, it definitely does. And I think it's very. I actually listened to a a Jeffrey Wright podcast interview where he made this point about how they, you know, as I said earlier, they're both in their introductions, they are in certain ways sort of meant to be tokenistic of the intelligence agencies they represent and the nations they represent. But also, I think something that was important to Jeffrey Wright in thinking about these characters is the ways in which they also both have perspective on those things, particularly where we're seeing a James Bond who's like fully retired at this point and a Felix who is sort of saying you know, our heads of state are not really talking to each other right now, which it only occurred to me when somebody pointed this out that that was like sort of a Trump era thing, that like this movie was made in a time sure. when like the US... Although although ironically... Trump and um, Johnson. Trump and Boris... <laughs> totally <probably> fine. <laughs> were, well, eventually, once, once the ego was stroked, but you know, we're... Certainly, I think Boris had more hopes of getting stuff done under Trump than he does under Biden. Yeah, they were compatible. Um, so maybe it plays more Bi- accurately now. Yeah, Biden can see through sure. the bullshit, I think. Sure. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this this way in which they have a relationship that is distinct from and has perspective on uh, their relationships, the relationships of their countries and their respective agencies and how they have a very personal bond and God, we're not going to be able to avoid saying <laughs> that phrase. <laughs> but yeah, they have a a distinct personal relationship that is key to to making this plot move forward, and also key to the way to the way in which Felix dying is meant to I don't know, sort of like activate the plot for for James Bond in in a way where it's you know in his so his death you know he's shot and then the ship only on my second viewing did I really appreciate the idea of like. They sort of established the stakes of like, okay, we have a traitor, we lost Obrajev, Felix is shot, and they get halfway through that scene, and then like a bomb goes off and blows a hole in the boat, and the boat starts filling with water, and it's like, how can we make this very dramatic emotional moment even more dramatic? Have them in a boat that's sinking. It was like Titanic, yeah. again, adding to the romantic vibes. Like, this was full on, <laughs> like... Titanic you know, rose on the door and whatever, like we're saying our goodbyes. For me as well, like it shades of Vesper's death and, you know. Totally. Wa- oh yeah, in the water watching, too. Yeah, the, the, wa- watching someone and kind of, you know, Bond, who is this guy who, you know, is, is practically superhuman that's able to pull things out of the bag when they seem the most unlikely, you know, being unable to save felix you know in a way that and you know i compared the franchise to mission impossible earlier but in a way that ethan hunt that's rarely the case for him you know like benji should have died three times by now <laughs> but 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 uh, you know i mean god god willing in the next movie but um <laughs> i hate benji oh, not a benji uh, fan, <laughs> wow no but yeah, and, and, and so I thought there was a little bit of added resonance there. I also wonder if there's something in that Bond-Felix relationship in this movie. Like you say, not not just, in, not just you know, our heads of state aren't really talking to each other at the moment. But, you know, in the, in the nature of these kind of like waning superpowers, and obviously ours has been waning for 
a lot longer. But these countries who, you know, kind of ruled the world for centuries, um, you know, uh, you know, now are having their elections interfered with by foreign states and mm-hmm. and and actually is there something a little bit more relevant in the bond v- villain style of you know back in the 60s bond either it, it had a mix of it's either behind the iron curtain or it's a, a mad megalomania and actually does that feel a little bit more relevant now that it's <laughs> you know that it's 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 you know it's Russia hacking elections and it's and and are the biggest threats to democracy like nutters like well not nutters but like people like Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos like are they are those scarily rich individuals actually the people that we should be a a, a little bit more afraid mm-hmm. of and I did wonder that you know particularly with the Felix scenes here that it was it wasn't just two guys that were past it it was two it was. It, it was two guys who were representative of their institutions as well. In um, Quantum of Solace, there's this like kind of low-key amazing exchange where Bond says something really sad. They're in South America and Bond is like, oh, you know, I bet if, if South America hadn't had this threat of communism hanging over it, like the US would have just carved it all up for itself. And Felix just goes, oh, that's a compliment coming from a Brit. And it's like this really subtle, like sassy... Yeah colonialism critique that's just kind of like thrown into there and really great delivery by right and i think does speak to what you're saying joe about this sort of broader commentary on these two superpowers and sort of where they're standing now and that's you know that is another one of those awkward things about bond that you know certainly as a you know bleeding heart lefty liberal that you know watching this franchise you know he is you know he is, you know, he is a man who is on Her Majesty's Secret Service, you know, mm-hmm. and and he is he is this personification of 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 Britain globally, and you know, so, you know, uh, if they ever do make the decision for, uh, I mean, like there are certain, you know, if you were to go on the Mail Online right now and look at the comment section under any article about Bond, it would be all about how it's ridiculous that there is a black woman playing 007. Yeah. And you know so th- there is something quite emotive in that idea as well and and I and I think actually from the people who are making it is and hopefully it's something they lean more into it's it's um it's it's a, a, another one for me I think of those um uncomfortable things about Bond which makes him even more interesting and relevant is is that you know yeah, he is he is not just a Cold War relic. He is a relic of yeah, a colonial British Empire. Mm-hmm. Who who what do they have to do with most of this stuff to begin with? <laughs> yeah, that's it feels like it's not exactly grappled with that much. I mean, Quantum of Solace did have a sort of like CIA bad guy or like CIA collaborator. It it, it feels like they are starting to take some tiptoes towards that but i wouldn't say i wouldn't say any of these movies like fully grapple with the legacy of colonialism i think that might have been what some of the temptation to make it all personal Mm -hmm. was about that you know that 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 then you can make the you can make the battles more personal more introspective um so you know skyfall is all about m and then spectre is all about bond's hidden Mm -hmm. past yeah, I think one of one of those is a lot more successful than another. Madeline obviously. Swan. You, well, yeah, this this one is about you know the 
I guess bringing together all of those threads, I think. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Ma- Madeline is the the central figure in this. I'm really interested, Caroline. Actually, mm-hmm. with you with you bringing up Madeline, how did that relationship play to you? Because I know Ned said yeah. that he d- he didn't really think it worked in the last mm-hmm. movie, but it was better this time. Um, I think it's the weakest aspect of that of this movie that the the two characters don't for me have much chemistry but i'd be interested to see how it played for you as for as someone who you know this movie introduces it in kind of the pre the not the pre-title sequence but you know well the pre yeah the pre the pre-title sequence is literally what it is um it introduces this relationship as basically this is vespa Mm 2.0 this is this is the new love of bond's life and that that's the launching pad for this movie in in kind of isolation. Yeah. So I don't, (laughs) the relationship did not work for me at all. I would say that's probably my biggest critique in terms of this specific film is that that relationship didn't work for me. My biggest critique of why I don't really connect to the Craig era of Bond is that I don't really feel like Bond is an interesting character (laughs) or a character (laughs) I relate to or care about. So to me, I'm sort of like watching a Ken doll like do interesting action scenes, which is not unfun, but it's not something I'm ever going to feel an emotion about. In fact, I think with the Craig era, all the characters who have personalities are the ones who are always on the fringes of the stories. It is like the Felix or especially the Q or the Money Penny or even Nomi, that's her name, right? The new 007, Mm -hmm. LaShawna Lynch character. I feel like all those characters have actual personalities, whereas... Craig's Bond and I think especially Madeline are just sort of like these Barbie dolls that like they the movie tells me things about them and I'm like sure I can pretend that that's what I'm seeing on screen but um I mean obviously going into this I I got the sense that they had ha- that she had been a holdover from Spectre and I sort of knew okay there's obviously there's pieces I'm missing here but I'm going to try to jump on board with this as best I can I think like the age it, it reads as a really big age difference between them it is mm-hmm. 17 years. The actors are 17 years apart. I think the actress looks even younger than she is. <laughs> um, like, I was like, is this woman 25? Like, is she literally... I, I had a moment where I thought, is this movie going to reveal that James Bond is her dad? <laughs> <laughs> Not knowing that her dad had been, like, fully established in Spectre, because they kind of yeah. mentioned it here. And I was yeah. like, is this going to go this fully dark, like, Horrible incestual... twist. <laughs> weirdness, wow, yeah. because the age difference, it, it just... I totally believe these are two people who would hook up. I do not believe that this is the love of James Bond's life, that the, like losing her would define his emotions for the next five years of his life. That I could never buy into. And the problem is that they are, ha- they are having to draw the parallels with Vesper. That's, that's an important, uh, you know, it, they are the challenge. It's almost like the challenge at the end of how I met your mother, right? That the, that the mother has to turn up and instantly you have to go like, oh, I get it. This is this is why he was telling this insane story. The irony of how I met your mother is mm-hmm. they get the mother they get the mother really right and get everything else wrong. Um, but in in this, I just think there's there's so much pressure ha- hanging over Madeline Swan if that's the position you want her to take in the story, which it does. And I and I don't think that the character as written or performed comes close to convincing you that it would it would 
fill the kind of or, or, or be the successor to Vesper that, that that he would feel as strongly about her as he did about Vesper. But also, this movie does not have to be as invested in Vespa as it is, right? Like one character that existed in a movie that was released 14 years ago does not need to be central to your movie that's released today. Like the movie is making that choice and the movie could have <sighs> moved on. And like, to be honest, I like this movie was way too long. <laughs> they needed to cut like once I was not into this movie until we got to what feels like the opening action scene, which is the like, we're stealing the nanobots from the, um, you know, the big factory or whatever the big facility where they're being made i was like yeah this is what i want the movie to start with i want a cool action scene and an, and an independent story i don't want flashback to madeline swan's childhood then a long lengthy prologue that's about james bond grieving a woman from four movies ago from a movie that came out when i was 16 years old and then a tragic goodbye with this girl and then a title sequence that i think is like 30 minutes into the movie and then the story gets going <laughs> i'm like no buddy like let's just let's hop right in there <laughs> i don't need this much again this is the perspective of someone that's not invested in this mythology and this yeah. continuity in any way but like I feel like there's a way to meet in the middle to hit both audiences maybe a little more effectively I, than this does. I agree that it was too long. I'm with you on that. I can't immediately point to what I would cut, but I definitely, particularly watching it the second time. I'd, I'd put more in. I, put, you'd put, put more, more in. in. Yeah, another, go for it. Another 15 minutes. <laughs> I liked the Italy prologue. I guess I would say that for me, definitely we disagree on finding the character James yeah. Bond interesting. And for me, mm-hmm. a lot of that is like has really been hammered home by this last week where I watched all of them again and have decided that I've resolved a sort of a long-running question in my head on the side of Daniel Craig has a clear vision for, as I say, like a character arc, and he is, you can trace him going along that arc. And I also sort of agree that I think the movie tries to tie its plots together too much, you know? This character is from this, oh, Mr. White, you have to remember. But but I do think that they have a good project of, of following one guy's psychology, and I think if you watch all five of them, it works. And it causes me to think, yeah, I don't mind having a last Vesper button on this film. Yeah, and... So I, I kind of lay the blame at all of the, the the elaborate continuity at Spectre's door. And I kind of feel I kind sure. of feel like no time to like I said, I don't like it, but I prefer this approach of going, look, we're not gonna pretend it didn't happen, because it did, but we're gonna we're gonna lean into it the amount we have to rather than kind of making it the entire thing. So I like that there is one Blofeld scene and we get rid of him and he's dead. And it so it's like the the last move move no, I would have cut that too. <laughs> well, I didn't care. So I, I didn't. Care. I didn't care, <laughs> but I. I think as a you know coming out of Spectre, you kind of have to do that because that's the. But do you? If somebody if somebody made a movie that's sort of universally disliked, you don't need to. Con- you can cut your losses and not make that infect your next. <laughs> but the, movie, so right? the MCU does this all the time, right? There's 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 just like there are there are certain things that you kind of like. It's like do you know what. Um, even though it doesn't work for this movie, we have to pause and talk about the Infinity Stones right now. And I and I, yeah, yeah, I no, don't like that either. But Cut that. <laughs> I, so what I'm saying is, I understand why all of that stuff was in there. Whereas while while I didn't particularly, you know, I don't particularly care about any of it. I don't think that Madeline's a particularly interesting character. I do, yeah, the same as Ned. I really need to fight the corner of. 
Daniel Craig's Bond being an interesting character. And, 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 you know, I can completely understand, Caroline, your perspective and not finding him interesting. And, you know, if you're saying all of that stuff in Italy was boring to you, well, that's probably because you don't care about the character. Whereas, whereas, I, you yeah. know, I, I, I do and I care about the Craig version of this character and all of the echoes back through. And so, you know, as a Bond fan, the moment that they're driving along a cliffside road and James says to Madeline, we've got all the time in the world, my fist is in my mouth going, oh no, what is about to happen? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And and I, I did think, you know, that kind of sense of inevitable dread hung over this entire movie. And, I, and that was something else that I kind of liked about it, that it had this... Even in its lighter moments and its silliness, it had this kind of air of watch out, just just watch out because because mm-hmm, this is for sure. um, you know uh, yeah and, and for anyone that's not a Bond fan, all the time in the world is uh, that's what um, what Bond says to Tracy Bond just after they've been married in the final final scene of um, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is. Aside from having a not very good Bond actor, I think as as close to masterpiece as the Bond franchise has got, it's it's fantastic. Um, it's I think my it's in my at least in my top two or three Bond movies of all time, um, <laughs> and uh, and and yeah, and so I was kind of you know uh, my that that entire sequence in Italy and then when Ve- that when Vespa's name was dropped and we're going to her, I'm like yeah this is all the stuff I want with Bond and why I think Bond is it that Daniel Craig's Bond is interesting is because there is this sense of this is this this British ideal man right and and it's why I would push back to anyone that says um Bond can't be this or it can't be that when you're recasting again. The only things that for me Bond if you want to if you want to explore the full extent of Bond I think he needs to be British. Uh, sorry, sorry, no, of course he needs to be British. I think he needs to be male. I think you could make interesting 007 movies or you could make an interesting movie that is, you know, a a, a James Bond who's female. It just isn't going to have the full gamut of what you can explore with that character but mostly i think he needs to be british male and middle class in the in the way that we talk about in in britain uh middle class being Mm -hmm. kind of you know like uh public school educated um little bit of a silver spoon you know the rp accent he he's a he's a he's a man that has a certain amount of entitlement and refinement um and the good and the good and the bad that goes yeah. with both of those things and I, and and what i have liked about the craig era is that he is this british middle class ideal um you know he he has that throwback to the empire and to wartime of being this british cad who is traveling around the world in his tuxedo and bedding women and shooting bad guys and you know like and it, and and i think it does harken back to that british wartime spirit of you know we're going out into europe to stop the nazis and while we're there by hell we'll have a jolly good time you know um and mm-hmm. I, I like that Craig has all of those trappings, but you see that and you see him trying to maintain that exterior throughout the course of these five movies and it being chipped away at because 
he is just a little boy playing at being this super spy and he, and 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 he is this guy that just can't get over his first girlfriend and can't get over his mummy and daddy issues and uh, yeah and 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 that he is all of these like this this just bundle of insecurities and this mm-hmm discontentment and dissatisfaction like he's not daniel craig's bond is not a happy guy he's 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 not traveling right. the world like you get the sense that this is a guy who's doing this but kind of takes no joy in it and that's what i love yeah. that's different about know, but in him which case... and that's what i love about what the direction this movie takes it in and goes to remove mm-hmm. bond from that status quo Let's break the rule that Ned was talking about earlier. Let's throw soulmate and daughter in his path, and and, and then and then finally, finally, in and, and literally is you know is it's split seconds at the end of this movie. Understand who that guy might be if you strip that exterior away and you give him a modicum of inner peace. Of oh, this is what I would, you know. Would he die for Queen and Country? I don't know, but he did. What he doesn't choose to die for Queen and Country, and that's he chooses to die for something else, and that's that's what was really. Yeah, mm-hmm. if you told me in advance the device that gets us to the Bond sacrifice at the end of this movie, I'd go, "Oh no, why? This feels like a really, really bad idea." I want to hear what you guys think. It really worked for me, but I'm aware <laughs> it really worked for me as someone who has a two-year-old daughter at home whose middle name is Vespa. So, uh... (laughs) (laughs) And the plot you're talking about, there is essentially the plot of this movie is that, to quote The Office, there's a government-created killer (laughs) nanorobot virus (laughs) that M has inadvertently created, falls into multiple people's hands. I I know we at one point had thought maybe we would talk through the plot of this movie, but I feel like base level, you got this thing created. It's going back and forth through different villains. Ultimately, tragically, James Bond is infected with this DNA weapon that means he can never touch his love and his daughter again without killing them and because he's also injured and he's staying behind to save them not even touch them though right that what they've established about the nanobot is basically you pass it between anyone you come into contact with and it's and at like it's mm-hmm. such it's such nonsense right but it's old school bond <laughs> nonsense and i like it um except sure. it's 21st century because it's nanobots um Nanobots. But and, and I can also see why, given this central premise, that um, they were really willing to not release this movie right at the start of a global pandemic, where uh, yeah. a virus is very easily transmitted around people and ultimately, you know, will kill the most vulnerable. But yeah, that Bond basically, if he con- comes into contact with someone, the nanobots have passed that person, and eventually, because it is merged with Bond, if, if it it can pass back to that person and eventually get to them. So Bond really can't, like, he couldn't even make the decision to just live and never see his wife and child again. Just by virtue of seeing another person, he would be putting them in danger. I think that thing that you just explained only really came clear to me with some later thoughts. I do think the, I mean, I don't know how much clearer they could have made it in the movie. There was already so much exposition, but... I did have a friend who I saw it with stand up after the first viewing and say, so that was about a guy who would rather die than live in quarantine. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, ah, yeah. uh, 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 kind of, I guess. I mean, 
It did feel like it was at least, I mean, if whatever, I'm not necessarily the one that's going to like nitpick the plot. It did feel like, well, maybe you could like try to do a little more research into this before you really make this decision. To be fair, he's also been shot about five times and had to stay back. Would have been tricky anyway, but emotionally, he makes the decision of, I'm not giving up. This, This is now the mission. Yeah. See, I think I'm the opposite of you, Joe, where you said that like this sounds silly on paper, but it really worked for you in practice. I actually think it sounds really cool on paper. I quite like sort of a tragic separation story. I think mm. of like Will and Lyra in the oh, Golden no. Compass series. Oh, Caroline, or the Doctor and, and Doctor don't Who. invoke like, that. Go there. These things, I actually like things <laughs> that are like that, like, oh, we have to be separated, usually really hit me. But in this case, because it's, I'm it's, so... It's not that that doesn't, it, that, that doesn't work for me on paper. It's the idea of... Bond having a daughter in the in the first place, like it, it just sure. that that doesn't. I feel like that's the kind of thing that you know. It's like Superman having a kid in Superman. It's in Superman Returns, and you go, sure. And it just it feels almost kind of canon breaking, and you know there is there's also to to flashback to Casino Royale. There's an implication in the Fleming novels that the torture scene he undergoes at the hands of Lashif in right. Casino Royale leaves him infertile, and that's one of that's mm. one of the reasons that he can. Um, I, I was going to say, for want of a better phrase, but I'm happy to say it, that he can raw dog his way around the world with <laughs> with little with little concern. I mean, it does feel kind of like like it does feel like you should just have a vasectomy, right? Like the way they do with yeah. the Black Widow thing. Like, shouldn't it just feels like if you're going to be this international spy. Um, I don't mind it. The logic of it doesn't bother me. The thing is, emotionally, I'm just never invested in this. I think when you guys are listing your checklist of what you want from James Bond and like what is crucial to James Bond, what I come back to to me. James Bond is camp. What I connect to in the Sean Connery films is the camp and the comedy and the winking and the self-awareness. So when you take that away, I'm just watching a spy movie that could be any spy movie. And you can put all these references in, but like it's not the thing that I personally associate with James Bond. And then there's kind of like nothing left there for me to really hold on to. That's interesting though, because I think, I don't know how this translates in, in, in the US, but in the UK, I think people would acknowledge that the more era is camp and that there is camp in the brosnans but that sean connery wasn't Mm -hmm. sean connery is sean connery is masculinity personified and maybe there's some silliness around him as it goes further on but his bond is not it's not camp aren't they it's like kitschy like oh i have these fun gadgets and oh i'm saying i'm not like a like a like a sexy one-liner but like in a kind of winking way fine one i mean him coming out of the wetsuit and having the tuxedo on is like that is one like sort of sub-genre of camp although it's definitely different from like roger moore driving the gondola with wheels around venice it's not psychological realism Mm. it's fun right like the point of the connery bond i mean again i'm not you guys are the experts i'm certainly not but isn't it there's like a fun moments but then again you know like i would invoke stuff like you know uh, from russia with love which is uh, and maybe this comes back to my favorite bonds i think my favorite bonds are casino royale from russia with love and on her majesty's secret service which are all more a, a little bit more gritty and grounded and a little bit more the violence is uh, the the fights. You know, the fights are a little bit more physical. It's it's less gadget based. It's more it's more so the, the spy craft is more important. And I think you know that's I, I, I've not read all of the Fleming stuff, but that from from what I do know, that's closer to what Fleming did. 
And so that's always, I think, the side of Bond that I'm a, that I'm instinctively more drawn to. However, I do still have affection for all of those campy elements that you're talking about because that's all Bond too. <laughs> well, like, here's a question. If this were a movie, say that this they filed the serial numbers off. This was not called James Bond. And you I guys just care. went to see this movie. <laughs> Would you like it as much as you do knowing, you know what I mean? Like, how much of you guys liking this movie is tied to, like, the fun of adaptation versus what's on screen is in- inherently engaging. A decent amount is <laughs> certainly tied to, <laughs> as I say, like, not just to having, you know, like if like if this was the first one, you just say like, the agent lost his friend works for the CIA and I had no like 60 year history. I'd say that's, that's sad, I guess. I don't know. I do think that a lot of, to answer your question as asked, like a lot of the fun of it does have to do with those things. Although I would also argue this movie has a lot of, good fun anyway like it is i think it is just a it's got some solid action it's got some i think some really fun spy camp i yeah mm-hmm. i loved the anna de Armas set piece and totally. spectre kind yes. of spectre Agreed. getting revealed like they're the you know um nicholas rogues witches you know like uh, just like all of this, these just ghoulish faces emerging from the crowd to be like aha now we get to watch him die like if that yeah. I I, mm-hmm. I loved that, and I and I and I loved the. I, I thought Anna Dermas was fantastic. She runs away with that with that sequence, and yes, completely. And agree. you know the contrast of Bond and Madeline to Anna Dermas being like, "Take your clothes off," and he's like, "Oh," and she's like, "Oh, <laughs> no, no, look, look, look at us." You, I, I mean. You're hot, sure, but you're also like thirty years older than me. Let's let's just not do that. Yeah. And 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 I did like that he, you know, he doesn't, you know, there's a similar thing with Lashana Lynch, right, where she's like, I know how yeah. to get inside this guy's sanctum. It's to make him think that I'm gonna get inside his bed, and that's not happening. And that happens to Bond a few times throughout the movie. Yeah, almost exclusively. It's mm. like definitely a runner. The Cuba section is amazing. I wish the whole movie the had highlight been that. of the movie. That was that I was agree. it was such the highlight. It was so fun. Anna, and see, Anna Darmus, she has a personality. That is a character that has a very fun and unique personality, and I enjoy watching it. It doesn't feel generic in the way that I think. You know, my flaw it, of it is that I don't always know what there is to draw me to these movies beyond to watch this movie instead of a Mission mm-hmm. Impossible movie or a <laughs> Charlie's Angels movie or what, you know, any sort of spy movie. And it is in that Cuba section where I was like, yes, this is, you know, not as campy as Bond could be, but mm-hmm. certainly fun and effervescent and and unique and creative and has a lot of personality within that character and within that sequence. And like, I wanted the whole movie to be that because I loved it, that whole it's sequence It's really so difficult to answer your original question now about would I like this movie if it wasn't a Bond movie? Because, yeah, I don't know, probably, you know, there are lots of, there are lots of, for me, generic action thrillers that I don't care for. But also, this movie by its very nature is so, like, by its design is in conversation with a 60-year screen history. And I course, I just yeah. can't separate that from it. And, you know, yeah, those are some of the things that I like the best about it. And that's some of the stuff that I like the best about the third act, that it is, that Safin is, he's just an old-school Bond villain. I don't really care for Rami Malek as an actor broadly. But here I was like, oh, yeah, they've, they've just tapped into Rami Malek's inherent <laughs> creepiness. To do, to to do, you know, I was yeah. I was convinced he was playing Doctor No until 
he explicitly wasn't. But you know, that's kind of, you know, it is it is basically what they're going for. Island base. Yeah, he is so close to Doctor now. But no, I, 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 I loved that all of that third act stuff felt like just classic Bond nonsense. And that Safin I, okay, you've told me he's got this connection to Madeline. It doesn't it doesn't really matter other than that's the driving plot point towards him infecting Bond. Is it so he's jealous? I, yeah. I, I found him hard to hold on to. My experience was that I, I guess because this movie had been in production for so long, I somehow had it in my head that Rami Malik was Inspector. <laughs> and so this entire time watching the movie, I was like, you know, this character doesn't make sense, but I'm sure like with Madeline Swan, if I had seen Spectre, I would completely understand everything. And like, no. wow, how interesting that they're filling in all this backstory with him and Madeline that I'm sure wasn't covered in the last movie. And and and, and it would all make sense if I watched that. And I found out he was only in this movie. I was like, what the hell? Like, what was he? Why? What? Like, nothing about it made sense. I almost, Now I need to pull a net and go rewatch it but with you know, this I'm knowledge not- that everything we know about him is I don't think anything movie. about him really matters in the movie other than that he is a villain who is getting in Bond's way sure yeah it, and, and there are you know there are scores of it you know Doctor No doesn't turn up until the third act in Doctor No you never you don't you don't yeah. meet him until then because he doesn't he doesn't matter he's yeah he's the villain and he's the you know the name in the title of the movie but he doesn't mm. he doesn't matter and so in, in that third act, all I really cared about was Bond. And, and at that point, I am finding it very, very easy to put myself in the shoes of a guy who is looking at this girl who, by the way, the casting of Mathilde, who I don't know whether the eyes were done with contacts or CG or whatever, but the, you look at her and you're like, even when Madeline says, oh, she's not your daughter, you're like, she she is though i know immediately that she is doesn't even bond say that yeah 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 yeah. and and uh, and she is so adorable and i mean Mm. i would have given my life to save the doodoo (laughs) the doodoo needed say it needed saving and uh, and but yeah i i just i felt and i remember actually so this is a, a decade ago before i was a dad um my, yeah, my daughter is too. But when when Under the Skin came out, I don't know if you've seen that, the Jonathan Glazer movie uh, with mm-hmm. Scully Hansen. There was a scene in that movie uh, which is really harrowing because, like, the, the, the alien character in that movie just doesn't understand humanity. And she's kind of traveling through and, tra- and, and trying to kind of, like, experience it. And, and also trying to feed. And she in one sequence separates a baby from its parents and there is a shot of a baby crying the baby left behind on the beach crying just completely and utterly helpless and I remember at the time thinking like oh that's unpleasant and then someone who was uh you know a father of a of a a child of a similar age walking out and going oh my god that just I'd like I'd I, I almost couldn't concentrate on anything that followed in the movie because the the idea mm-hmm. of that baby left on the beach right completely helpless and you know something that's that age you need to just constantly be your job is to keep it alive and seeing this baby then in tears as well because its only connection to the world has been removed from it and you know now I watch that movie and I'm like oh my god I, I'm scared to watch that movie because of that scene. And I am very aware that, that, that this is my personal experience clouding this, but 
you know, the moment that that da- the daughter element. So I, I've said I don't really think there's much chemistry with Madeline, but the moment the daughter element was introduced, mm-hmm. I was just like, oh yeah, no, 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 I, I, I get it. And you know the way that, mm-hmm. and we we've not said his name, but Kerry Fukunaga, I think does a fantastic job. I think this is one of the best directed, but the first American to direct a Bond film. Fasc- you know, fascinating yeah. this one, this long. But um, I, I I think he does a fantastic job. I think particularly that pre-title sequence is gorgeous, and the shot where Madeline and Matilda are, are are leaving, and Bond looks at them for the last time. I was like, oh, he's looking at them for the last time. And then he goes back in and, oh, I should say at the start of this movie, I have gasped when the Universal logo has turned into the gun barrel. I genuinely gasped. Like, I was like, oh, like the new distributor has worked for this movie already. Great. Okay. And then the sequence then in the base where he turns and kind of does the gun barrel sequence in continuity of the movie. That was a great bit. I was like... Oh, this is so good. And then he's traveling up the stairway. And I was, again, I was talking to Reese about this. And he was like, oh, it was such a boring sequence where he's just going up a, a concrete staircase and just taking no, out I villains. Like and I can see Caroline nodding, going, yeah, like that is generic third act bullshit. Where he's just. <laughs> no, I didn't hate that. Yeah. It wasn't my favorite. But I'm but just I didn't like, I'm it. watching a level of Goldeneye right now. This is, this is Golden. Someone's popping sure. out from behind a different corner of the staircase. And like. It just uh, like, we're, and we're nodding to the fact that it was styled as one shot yeah. is like, yeah, I, I don't know if it really was or not, but I think, I think one shot, long shots are just so wonderful because you have this sense of the actor's like virtuosity in performing it. And that meta layer of being like old, broken old Craig <laughs> couldn't walk on his knee anymore is just h- hustling his ass up that tower block. But, and I know. also liked the, with it being a, a that kind of like, you know, winding staircase approach is it feels like a throwback to that fight scene in Casino Royale where it takes mm, him so yeah. you know yeah. it's a it's like a 10 minute fight scene to just defeat this one guy and here he is now the wizened old pro just <laughs> all the way up the stairs and it's fitting that because Fukunaga had that he uh, did the first yes. season of True Detective yeah. which I actually feel like really pop repopularized this idea of a long one take yeah. fight sequence like that you know I think they're they're really trendy right now and I feel like he was he was right at the cusp of that so it's appropriate yeah. that he has now swung swung yeah. back around yeah. and given yeah. us Thank another you, one Carrie. so yeah when he when he when he gets up to the roof and he looks out and he and he gives the phone call I am just like I, I I get it because I, I'm like I can't that I, I don't even have to think about why he's made this decision. It completely makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then just you know, and and Ned, I'm really interested how this moment played for you as as someone who you know has has, has had the same kind of lifelong relationship with Bond. Seeing that character die, and and again, I'm the person who feels like the end of Rogue One is a cheap trick because it's like I don't, I, I none of those characters were interesting in this movie. I don't, I don't care. Um, <laughs> See, I'm the opposite on that. I'm so much more invested. Yeah, in Rogue and, One, and, and, and I and I, and, and I completely I, I completely get that. But uh, from a personal point of view, I'm watching I'm watching James Bond die. I sat in my seat in the cinema until. Louis Armstrong had finished playing over the closing credits. I couldn't move. I was just like... And like I said, I kind of thought that that was where the movie was going from the first scene. I had been teed up for a number mm-hmm. of years for that being a possibility. That that sequence held incredible power for me that 
like I said, I've I've got it marked down as a four star movie in my letterbox because I'm like it's a good mm-hmm. Bond movie. But just personally, and knowing kind of you know what the Bond fran- franchise, what the Bond movies have meant to me in my life, and what that character represents for good and bad, just seeing someone who. You know, he is the, uh, for me, he is the most invulnerable character in cinema. He's the guy that can have Mm -hmm. um, a laser pointed at his gentleman's agreement and walk away unscathed. You know, (laughs) there's always something that Bond will be able to do. And yeah, I I thought it was incredibly powerful watching that invulnerable character die, but also him making the decision to allow it to happen for just, uh, for something that he the Craig Bond had been battling against since the first movie, which was allowing himself to be vulnerable to human connection. Mm-hmm. So Ned, how did all this stuff play for you? I think that for me, when you said two big spoilers for this movie, I thought you were going to say Bond dies and Bond has a kid. Yeah. Um, Bond having a kid, as you said, is kind of feels like it is a swerve on the... Um, unbreakable like rules and structures of bond Mm -hmm. and i found it really is just endgame it is just tony stark's arc in endgame (laughs) oh here's a daughter here's a death yeah (laughs) here's five years and yeah five years later i was like the blip uh (laughs) i think i i I got invested in their chemistry i mean bonds and the kid like watching him like make her a little breakfast and be Mm -hmm. like sort of solicitously wondering like the idea of Watching, like, a child somehow, like, immediately slice through all of his cynicism was so wonderful to me. And I really wanted to see him get to, like, start that chapter. Because I think another question that's been running through the movies has been, like, when will Bond step away for good? Because he's actually, like, you know, for a character who, for much of his history, like, in License to Kill, when he stops working for MI6... That was sort of a big shocker. Craig's Bond, I feel like, has been on the lam or like he's gone rogue like as much as he's been working for. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's he's like and Ethan Hunt, you yeah. know, he's similarly is like we now it's it's weird if they're just like taking orders the whole time. We've but, we've enacted ghost protocol. What were we in before? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I think for me that the the having a kid was enough of a big structural change that as they were building up to the death, I was like, I don't know, maybe I had just not seen enough serious speculation about it and not been prepped for it. But I was like, no, they're not going to do this, are they? In a way that I am not sure I found it to be entirely satisfying. I think I might have been more excited about seeing him get a chance to, like, actually go have a family. Like, that to me mm. could have been, like, Bond saying, I'm going to walk away from this and get to retire. Again, I guess that's kind of similar to... It's, this is very like Dark Knight Rises also. Like all these things do the same too. thing. It's like, does he get a chance? Does he ever get to retire? Or does he have to die? Or does he have to seem to die in order to retire or what have you? You know, I think I, I walked out of theater the first time just feeling kind of cold being like, oh, but he's dead. You know, I, it just, it just, it, it dampened me, I feel. And the second time through, I kind of got the decision to do that out of the way and was able to enjoy more of what was going on. But I still sort of wonder if it, it is to me the most satisfying way to wrap that movie up. So I guess, you know, now that you mention it, like what you were saying earlier about the death of Felix and how, which I agree, like had, I think there's like one shot in particular and Felix is drifting away from him. I'm supposed to call back to Vesper. 
that or if you're me titanic yeah or titanic it's you know it's you know vesper sinking to the bottom of the elevator or leo sinking to the bottom of the north sea yeah i guess i could have seen it seeded through that like mortality was going to catch up to bond but but i i didn't feel it happening there in a way where almost skyfall feels like more a movie that was queued up to end with his death but then didn't so then Mm -hmm. i like wasn't sure why i wasn't exactly sold on this one doing that yeah caroline let's see the yeah it doesn't i don't i don't have any like strong take on whether or not it should happen in terms of how you should present bond i think the the problem for me is i just didn't feel an emotional pull in how they chose to do it so yeah like i guess again on paper the poignancy of it i like the sort of like stiff upper lip british goodbye i think feels appropriate for a character like bond like you know he gets his little moment of peace but he's not you know he's like really facing his death head on i think that you know if you're gonna do it i guess that feels right but again i mean it just comes back to me just not having super strong opinions on this franchise like i don't i i just don't i don't emotionally connect to it i do just i i engage with it as fun action scenes interesting choices and just not something that's going to pull on my heartstrings one way or the other, I don't think. I think, again, I, I and and so to, to again, once again, reference on Her Majesty's Secret Service, which, you know, is the, the, the sequence that this movie ends on is Madeline repeats the refrain from earlier in the movie, the, the all the time in the world, and, and, and drives into the tunnel, which becomes another gun barrel. Because um, I think uh, Carrie Fukunaga is just really hot shit with all of this imagery. I, um, I, 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 I think this is the, I think this is one of the best directed Bond films since, uh, you know, since since the Sean Connery era. Like I, I, I just think he does a, a fantastic job. I don't think it's got the best script, but yeah, I, I, I think what what also added some poignancy for me was like finally it's Bond making the sacrifice. The amount of people around him who've had to die over the years and, you know, mm. specifically in Her Majesty's Secret Service, it's Tracy Bond. And the, the I, for me, the biggest wasted opportunity of the Bond franchise in 60 years is coming off the back of Her Majesty's Secret Service and going, oh, Sean, will you come back for one more? And we'll, and we'll barely mention it. You know, like Quantum of Solace fumbling the Vespa stuff in, uh, it, uh, coming off of Casino Royale pales in significance to how they just kind of uh, don't grapple with one of the best moments in the Bond franchise or the, or the most interesting moments for that character when he loses his wife. And so I, I kind of, I, I loved that being paid off and I loved the decision to play out on that Louis Armstrong song, which is one of the best Bond themes of all time. Not the best, but one of the best. Um, and one that works, one that works really in tandem with the content of that film. So two things. One, what is the best Bond theme of all time? I love Carly Simon. Nobody does it better. Yeah. So the the other thing is it, it seems like we have over two and a half hours clearly established <laughs> a sort of thing where this movie, at least so in insofar as we have set ourselves up to represent longtime Bond fans and one uh, longtime true neutral ambivalent Bond <laughs> fan. That this movie seems to have been working a lot more for us. Now it could be any it could be anything else about us and who we are as individuals and movie viewers, but seems like a lot more things were popping here in terms of being in conversation with uh, previous films. I'm curious, Caroline, like as you've already said, Ana de Armas's performance and the whole Cuba sequence, which truly like 
yeah, I, I agree. It was just so, I mean, the way it was shot, the like sparks and color and blue background and them and their beautiful outfits, taking their like quick little shots when he like falls and lands on a bar and then pours them a drink. And, <laughs> yeah. and just the idea of having a villain ball. So, so fun. Oh. That's what I want from a James Bond movie. The guest of honor is an, is an eyeball on a pillow. Yes, exactly so what I want. So what else? And she's like, I've been trained for yeah. three weeks. yeah. I'll figure it Anything out. Anything else in this movie, Caroline, that was really working for you? There were some... I really like the scene, the sort of opening car chase. He leaps off the bridge with the rope, and then I like when they're in the car and they're getting shot at and Madeline's freaking out, and he's just, like, so <laughs> passive-aggressively, like, you will sit here until I feel like I am ready to drive mean. away. That kind of stuff is fun. Like, I don't know. There were probably one or two action scenes I would have cut. Like, I think the the concept of... Lashana Lynch's character is super fun. I always love seeing Ben Wishaw's cue. I couldn't get um that Mary Poppins song, the Mary Poppins Return song, out of my head. Like, since you left and went away. <laughs> I kept thinking about that. I was like, a cue will break out yeah. in song. Um, so, like, yeah, all the little side character stuff. Again, the people that have personalities, the gadgets. I liked the, the nanorobot facility mm. breakout scene with the magnets. But they're most for the most part, they're, like, little... They're like little snippets here and there. That again, super engaging. I could watch it on TV and like enjoy. Can I throw out one? I know we're kind of like trying to wrap up here, but can I throw out like one bomb as we're? Yeah, we don't. <laughs> yeah, throw a bomb. Door. We don't need to wrap up. I wonder if I, I don't think Daniel Craig is hot. To me, he's wow. not hot. And I wonder if the, the majority of you invest, if anyone investing in James Bond is just finding him inherently like attractive and appealing. Which I. And I don't. And I wonder if that is sort of a wall that I find with, like, connecting to this character. And I also don't really find the James Bond archetype attractive. Not that I even find it problematic or offensive. It's just not a character where I'm like, ooh, I I get the appeal and I am sucked into this story. I'm kind of like, eh, this guy seems kind of obnoxious, whatever. I don't need to invest in him. As, and I will say, Daniel Craig, the one time I have found him mm-hmm. really hot is in The Girl in the Dragon Tattoo. So I think he can play, in which he is playing, like, wounded, disheveled, <laughs> idealistic journalist in a sweater. Like, that's the kind of Daniel Craig that I'm going to be drawn to. Daniel Craig as, like, stoic, icy, suave man with no personality. It's just there's nothing to suck me in. And so I wonder if that's part of the wall I'm, I always find with the Bond in general and his era in so particular. So aesthetically, I think Daniel Craig is stunning. <laughs> like I, just, I think he's a beautiful man. And there's a scene when he gets out of the shower in this movie. And uh, some of the contours of his body as a heterosexual man, I was going... Holy shit. That's completely fair. Well, this is another question. Is Bond is Bond more attractive to straight men than he is to straight women? Well, so and this this is what I wanted to say. So in like historically, the like if you were to describe Bond in the UK, you would say he's the man who every man wants to be and who every woman wants to be with, right? That's the cliche of mm-hmm. Bond. Historically, I think that was true. Yeah, I don't necessarily think that, you know, that is the... I think Craig has got closer to it by revealing that vulnerability. Uh, but I, again, I think that's something that's that's interesting to play with Bond as they figure out, figure out the direction they want to go in next is, is this guy attractive? Because, yeah, when you said that, I bristled. I was like, have you seen his abs? Have you seen his <laughs> eyes? 
Yeah. See, it does nothing to me. But it's that's truly, the but, like I but, cannot explain it. It does absolutely nothing for me. Like, but, it's the, but that, but it's because it's the cat. Yeah, I think that must be because it's the character is not appealing. It. I mean, to be honest, well, it's maybe, also just yeah. Craig in general. Like, I'm just not a huge Craig fan. And then I'm not a huge Bond as a character fan. Mm. So combine the two and I'm like, well, really. But I do I do think there is an interesting nugget in there in like, is even that idea of Bond true anymore? And isn't that something that would be really interesting to see the fact because you know, there was a lot made of the fact that this movie had brought in Phoebe Waller Bridge to do a, a pass mm-hmm. on the script. And, you know, in certain scenes, like particularly, you know, that Anadamas scene, I think it does it does feel like it's in there. But Caroline, I, I thought the question you were going to ask, and I think it's connected to this, is have Ned and I responded to this a lot more positively because we're men? You know? Is this... Oh, is yeah. this, I is mean, this, that could be. I don't think it's a franchise that has always sold itself exclusively to men, but it is a movie that is... And, and, and all of the stuff that I'm talking about, you know, about what I found interesting about the character and the things I connected to are how I connected to him with the idea of being a father and how it chips away at these, Mm -hmm. at these ideas of British masculinity. And I, and I wonder whether I think, you know, maybe the, the strongest argument for replacing bond with a female bond is, is, you know, looking at, and, and I don't think the only way to do this is through the prism of a female bond, but is to maybe open it up and explore uh, and, and do something different than just this closed off traditional archetype of masculinity and, and have a, mm-hmm. and, and have a different archetype there. I think I I do personally think you could still do that with Bond. For me, the major prerequisite for where you go with Bond next is do not make him a straight white bloke. Like it, 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 you make your choice, make your choice for with what you want to do. But you know, like mm-hmm. one of your previous subjects of this podcast, I think Dev Patel would be an excellent Bond. Yeah. I think Riz Ahmed would be an excellent Bond. Yeah. I would love mm-hmm. uh, personally. I think a British Asian Bond would be a really interesting yeah. path to go down. I know uh, Regé Jean Page from Bridgerton, who I haven't seen Bridgerton, mm. but I can see mm. having heard him talk on adverts, I can see how that voice <laughs> would make a lot of sense for Bond with what I was talking about. about mm-hmm. being... I did watch Bridgerton and he does not have my vote. Right, okay. He doesn't, <laughs> He doesn't, Sorry, he doesn't seem interesting enough from the outside, but I haven't seen him in anything. So, but yeah, I, I like, yeah, the, the two names I keep coming back to in terms of people I know are Dev Patel and Riz Ahmed, who I think that would be really interesting. Someone like Idris Elba, he's, he's A, too old and B, too working class in, in Britain, I think, to make sense as Bond. I know why people want him to be Bond, because he's sexy and mm. cool and British and black, and that would be great to see as a Bond, but I don't think he's the perfect mix for it. Mm-hmm. I will say, if you cast Dev Patel as Bond, I am 75% more interested in Bond yeah. as a character than I have ever been in my entire life. Like, there is something about De- Dev Patel as a person I just find inherently appealing in a way that, honestly, I don't think I have with any of the previous actors that have played Bond. For me, like, I, and as a rule, I usually don't have a problem connecting to, like, very male-heavy things or things that are traditionally catered to, like, a masculine audience. So I think for Bond, for me, for Bond, it's just, like, something else 
that's not the cornerstone of what's making me disconnect from it. It's something unique to Bond. But it's like a it's like a sixty year amalgamation of all of that stuff building up and building up. So it's not just this white British male bloke. It's it's all of those things adding on top of each other, and then like the fun for me is watching them being deconstructed. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I and, and I think it might be something about British masculinity as well. That is that mm-hmm. is very that that you know we just uh, British men do uh, uh, are are not often emotionally vulnerable. We don't like to express ourselves. Certainly, mm-hmm. certainly not publicly. But see, I will. Put, you're not going to meet an American who likes British culture like yeah. more than I. Like I love yeah. British things. So again, it's like all of these individual pieces. I love. I actually really love stories about men. I like black and masculinity. I love British things. I'm fascinated by masculinity. Everything should add up actually to in terms of my likes should add up to me loving James Bond and there's some disconnect that I feel there and I think it's because it's not character driven enough in the way that ultimately I want my stories to be I also find Daniel Craig extremely attractive and maybe there is just some inability to see him as a as a hot and compelling person that that is uh gonna always be an obstacle it's the burden because I you, you keep saying no personality and I think I think that I I mean I cannot tell you to see something you don't see but I am so convinced that he is doing a character that has a very distinct personality that is interesting. I tend to often really like Daniel Craig. I love him in mm-hmm. small parts in like Munich and Road to Perdition. I am weirdly crazy about his voice performance in the Tintin movie, which maybe we can <laughs> get on here at some point. I find him very generally compelling to watch and that has i think predisposed me to like this although i would agree i do not feel personally well i would agree with, with what you were saying joe that maybe you weren't saying this but i was latching onto this idea i don't need to see a an emotionally tortured bond next my vote and this is the same thing i feel like i've always been saying they should do with batman instead of saying what if we did gritty but just different gritty which batman's been <laughs> rebooted so many times and yet with so many of the factors staying the same where I'm over here like just mm-hmm. desperately wanting something that feels a little bit more like the 90s cartoon. Similarly with James Bond, I feel like we have now a complete arc of of what I would call our most tortured James Bond. And I would be fine with someone who, with, with something that played up the, you know, just going for a little bit, playing up the camp, playing up the charisma. And I'm very interested by this new idea that you sort of raised of like maybe exploring masculinity in a completely different way. Like a, like a, well, this is a reference to something I haven't actually watched almost any of, but like the Ted Lasso of James Bonds. Like if we got someone who was like emotionally well-adjusted, I just mm-hmm. think you could do a lot of things with a character that kept the fundamentals of it the same, but I don't need someone to try to like out Craig Craig. I mean, his like emotionally damaged blunt instrument bond, I have personally found very interesting but I don't need another one now. Yeah, switch it up to something different. I mean, you guys are both saying the same thing in different ways, but we kind of want the next era of Bond to feel distinct from Mm. the era that came, whether or not you thought the Craig era was the best or the worst. Like, I think either way, it makes sense to go in a different Mm -hmm. direction for whatever the next era I think why I'm really keen on them casting someone who, particularly, I think, isn't white is because that that would 
instantly add a different dynamic to that character that doesn't mm-hmm. that doesn't break you could still have a very entitled very you know uh, someone who had a, a you know the right kind of upbringing in the UK but whose experience would be would be colored from by the way they were treated because of you know potentially their race or potentially their sexuality or their gender i think that that would be something that would be more interesting to explore and not like in a little winky way like i i I thought it was nice i thought it was good when they did it i thought it was a net positive but you know like caroline there's a scene in skyfall where essentially the villain says to bond have you ever had to seduce any men and he just kind of goes like basically his answer is obviously uh, you know that's that's the job, and conveniently we've never shown yes. any of that on screen yes. in six e- e- years. <laughs> but yeah. don't worry, off screen. Exactly. I and and you know and and again, I I don't think James Bond the character makes sense as a woman. But I think if if the decision was made of we want to make a female 007, I think equally that would be uh, would be really rich path to go down. I know some people think that the it would be really interesting to take Bond back into a period setting mm. and maybe make mm-hmm. 60s set Bonds again. I, wow. I, I yeah. certainly would be fascinated to see them try and tackle the Fleming novels a bit more uh, or, or hem closer to Fleming plot-wise than they did the first time around. Because the Fleming Bond, you know, you see... You kind of see shades of him early on in Doctor No and From Russia With Love and then never really again. It kind of is a different character after that. Craig shows signs of it, but there certainly isn't that, you know, it's the it's the the exterior of Craig's Bond is closer to Fleming. The emotional vulnerability isn't. So that that would potentially be interesting to do as well, to it to you know, to explore kind of, you know, with modern sensibilities the idea of that sixties spy. But yeah, I think there's, there's there's lots of interesting paths open to them. That what what I fear is they go complete reset. We start the continuity again. It's another it's another white guy who's Bond again, and it's it and it's Hardy. basically <laughs> Casino Royale Mark Two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. That'd be a drag. Yeah, I mean, I would watch it, but it would be a drag. Sure, I'll watch it, of course. <laughs> I'll see it twice on opening weekend, but that doesn't mean I'm gonna think it's the best decision. <laughs> I think where I'm at, this is kind of my final thought on Bond. I'm fine with James Bond not being for me. It mm. does not bother me at all that like tons of people get a lot of joy out of this franchise. I'm happy for them. There's things the franchise could do, aka casting Dev Patel, that I think would get me very invested. If it doesn't do those things, that's cool. Not everything needs to be for me. This isn't. I'm happy it brings you <laughs> to so much joy <laughs> that you could nerd out about it. But yeah, it's just I don't think it's going to be something I ever feel yeah. strongly about. And that's fine, but I think I think for Bond, the the next decision, you know, for this franchise is not just it's uh you know, maybe it does need to engage people like you Caroline. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe uh, I, yeah, I don't I, mean... I I I think that Bond faces a constant challenge to be not just relevant but kind of the best and the most interesting. And um yeah, I think in 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 the UK from the box office, it seems like it it still is for audiences, and they've got they've got a, a they've got a fascinating decision in front of them because you know the decision mm-hmm. they make now defines you know might define whether this franchise sees twenty thirty or not because at any point mm-hmm. it could go it it could go off the deep end. Yeah, 
Ned, what's your final word on Bond? I don't have a final. I more like the Cuba scene in the future. <laughs> really loved that whole bit. Can't can't say how much I enjoyed that chapter of the movie. And uh, oh, I like the Range Rover fight. I mean, there's all sorts of things about this movie I could continue to talk about. But yeah, it's been very fun to sort of like begin to dig into it. And just uh, one more shout out to uh, Jeffrey Wright. You know, I don't think we could call this a great part, but it is a part that he is great in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And a part that introduced him to a lot of people, even if they don't know his name. You know, I think for our next four episodes, we're going to look at parts that he's really, where hopefully there's a lot to dig into on those characters. But I think this is a strong example of something that he's been doing for a lot of his career, which is pulling down less than 15 minutes of screen time in movies where he still leaves a positive impression and mm-hmm. handles his parts of the movie, you know, brings crackle and personality to his scenes. And yeah, I think that's very true in No Time to Die. So it's in cinemas now. Go out and see for yourself. I guess it will maybe be on streaming at some point. It seems like that's becoming a little more the norm now. Certainly it will not. You won't have to wait as long as you did for... For it to come out in the first place. Yeah, so you won't have to wait as long as you did for it to reach movie theaters. And you won't have to wait as long as you would have in a pre-pandemic world. So see that movie or don't (laughs) as we say it's okay for it not to be for everyone i'm really hoping that the rest of the jeffrey wright movies you cover i would be i don't know what you've got up on the docket other than you saying basquiat which i haven't seen and um i'm going to use this as an excuse to watch because yeah i know that that was kind of his breakthrough role and the the cast i mean Mm -hmm. Jeffrey Wright and David Bowie in a movie. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna watch that. Absolutely. Uh, so, so very excited for that. But I'd be, I'd be stunned if you've got another movie lined up where he is given as restrained a performance as this. Because it, when I think Jeffrey Wright, I think of him doing a lot of business, and and mm. I love his business. So I'm, <laughs> I'm really, I'm really, uh, really looking forward to hearing the rest of this series and where you go with Jeffrey Wright. Yeah, I think we've got a uh, we've got some business on deck. We've got some movies. We also are going to be doing a roll calling first and discussing TV for Ooh. the first time. So we'll see how that comes. Uh, as you say, Basquiat is the one we're going to do next week. I haven't seen it in maybe fifteen years. My recollection is lots of good scene work, lots of juicy like nineteen eighties New York City art world stuff, and this like absolutely stacked cast. So. We are going to jump in and see what we find next week. But for now, a very big thank you to you, Joe. Uh, Where can our listeners find you? Um, In case they've forgotten from earlier. (laughs) Cinematic Universe Podcast. We're on Twitter at Cine underscore verse. And I'm at Joe Cunningham 14. Um, So yeah, we we do fortnightly episodes. And um, we have a Patreon feed as well. And then... um, all of my other movie nonsense I put on my letterbox at Joe Cunningham 14 as well. And I'm going to say on the air now what I said to Caroline Private, which is if you ever get to a Tom Cruise series, I demand to be on an episode and I can't, I can't pick which one. So I'm going to need you to pick for me. And there is literally nothing I wouldn't come to come on to talk about. <laughs> okay, great. Okay. We're going to pick the weirdest Tom Cruise movie, the most obscure Tom Cruise okay, maybe, movie. Okay, maybe maybe don't pick The Last Samurai, actually. But apart from that, I think I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> No, we'll come to you first and we'll oh we'll give God. you first dibs on any any and all future Tom Cruise projects. And clearly Ned and I are both big fans of Cinematic Universe, so we can't recommend Thank that you. enough. And check out your recent episode that touches on what if, if you need more jeffrey wright content in your life we've got a nice little crossover yeah. we need to we need to get there. both of you guys on together for a future episode that is uh that is uh okay we'll pencil that in right now beautiful looking Great. forward to it 
Roll Calling is produced and recorded by us, Ned Baker and Caroline Cedar. Our theme music was created by Patrick Buddy, and our logo was designed by Nick Wanserski. You can follow us on Twitter at RollCalling and email us at RollCalling at gmail.com. That's Roll, R-O-L-E. Uh, we'll be back next time to continue our Jeffrey Wright series with Basquiat. Until then... Yes, considerably. <laughs>